I do not remember whose turn it is. It's Heather's. Uh, Heather, A through Z. Okay. Um, K. K? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I've got nothing for K. But, I mean, uh, I'll just go with what I was going to talk about anyway. Start it with, Uh, did you know... But then that's a, that's a word that still sounds like the letter N. So. Mm, it's technically K, though. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I know how to spell no. I'm just saying. It still didn't get the cuss sound to it. Uh, I hear you. Anyway, what I was going to talk about anyway is. Uh, yeah, Barbie completely destroyed the Flash and Fast X. Uh, it made more money in its opening weekend than those movies did in their entire U.S. domestic run. Mm. So. Fun. That is cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with all that, too, the funny thing is, is Mattel is now working on, I don't know, creating a cinematic toy universe already. Uh, with, like... I don't know, like 40-something toy properties they want to bring to the big screen. Including Hot Wheels and Matchbox cars. Because, you know, those are apparently different. I, Of course they do. Typical Hollywood. I legitimately thought that those were the same thing, two different companies. Apparently Mattel owns both. Um... They want to do something with their Viewmaster property. You know, that thing that you used to put those stills on a circle and you would look into it like binoculars to see pictures of shit. They want to make that into something. They also want to make a movie about the card game Uno. Interesting. In fact, there is apparently a spec script or or, uh, a first draft of an Uno script out there. That somebody wrote on for for Mattel, that was a uh, set in a urban environment, or an urban hip hop environment in Atlanta. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Okay. I just don't even know what that means. The, what what the Uno movie is going to be? Just no idea. Atlanta hip hop. Yeah, I feel like Uno. I feel like it's going to be a stretch to get another movie the way that they're expecting to. I think. I think. I mean, they do own He Man. You know, they've already done this before. Do you remember how bad the He Man movie was, Justin? Yeah, don't remind me. <laughs> hey. Skeletor was no needs. went on point in that movie, though. He looked awesome. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> Not me. Not too many other positives. And 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 okay. Heather, your girl Courtney Cox was in that movie. I feel like I've seen it, but I just don't remember anything about it. 
Because I used to watch the cartoon. How could you not remember the movie, the cinematic masterpiece <laughs> that is Masters of the Universe? You're right. Oh, yes. No, I, I have seen it. By the power of Grayskull, right? Well, yeah, that's just He-Man. I mean, that's just like what I remember in the movie him saying it, though. So, yes, maybe I have seen it. You remember big old Dolph Lundgren? Vaguely. It's it's in the recesses of my mind somewhere. I wish I remembered of it as much as you do, Heather, but I remember way more than that for some terrible reason. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Anyway. But yeah. So expect a lot of more fun shit from Mattel. All because Barbie did well. It is cool, though, that it's the biggest opening for a female director. I think that is pretty cool. We'll get into that during the movie, Heather. Okay. My bad. Because that's specific to Barbie. But yes, you are absolutely correct, Heather. That that is a fact about this movie. But I'm more excited about the vastly different Hot Wheels and Matchbox movies. You're also they're also going to do a Polly Pocket movie. And that makes more sense to me, but I also had one, so I hope they also do a Mighty Max movie. And then do the inevitable crossover between Mighty Max and Polly Pocket. <laughs> Which also makes me curious. Was there ever a Polly Pocket cartoon? Not I that I know of. I can't remember one. Because there was a Mighty so. Max cartoon. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And for whatever reason, I watched that as a kid. I had a lot of self-esteem issues as a kid. I did not like myself. So I did things like watch Masters of the Universe and the Mighty Max cartoon. Apparently there is a Polly Pocket 2D animated adventure fantasy based on the doll. Is that a movie? Um, it says series. Oh, see, I guess they did. Yeah, I had no idea. It looks like it was done in... I don't know what year it was done in. I was trying to find what year it started. It'd have to be early it. 90s if it was the same as the Mighty Max TV show. Oh, no, it actually no, it actually says a 2018, so it's a newer one. Oh. Okay, so not... Yeah, not back when the other stuff was being made, but newer... Well, yeah, then no wonder I haven't seen it, so. Yeah, that's probably why I had no idea either. Huh. Anyway, we got two big-ass movies to talk about. You guys just want to go into that? Yeah. Skip all this other bullshit. Yeah, You. 
Cinema Slayers. Hey, Cinefans, and welcome back to another episode of the Cinema Slayers podcast. I am Sterling, and as always, I'm joined by Heather and Justin. And tonight, we are going to talk about what we liked, didn't like, and everything in between with the two movies, Oppenheimer and Barbie. We will go recommendations and scores. No, I'm sorry. We will go spoiler-free recommendations and scores, and then into a more spoiler-centric section for both movies with time codes in the description to allow you to jump around if you so require in both the audio and video formats. And with all that, we're going to start with Oppenheimer. And Justin will be going first. But I'm also going to warn everybody in YouTube land and everything like that. I very much had to rush through all like my normal after work routine. So you will see me eating jello and pudding. While Justin is talking, because I have to end my day with, you know, my end of day treats. So just ignore that while Justin talks about Oppenheimer. Justin, go. <laughs> All right. Um, here's some of that. Uh, here's some of that real cinema that uh, Martin Scorsese was talking about. Um <laughs> What was it, a year ago or whenever he said that about comic movies? That they're yeah, who fucking cinema. remembers? Who remembers Martin Scorsese? Well, oh, I think a lot of people do. But but um, but this is probably would be in his category of quote unquote real cinema. Um, but jokes aside, I did like this movie. I think it's good. It, it, it's a very good film man it it really is um even though i was joking just then this is kind of one of those like this kind of defines what i think like adult cinema is where you just kind of have this you, you have something that is topical something that's kind of uh, well, well, not even kind of. That's definitely like uh, in American history, just one of the more pivotal events that has happened um, in our American history. So you've got that. Um, you've got a great star-studded cast in this, and all of them are so talented, you know, from... Cillian Murphy, you got Emily Blunt, you got Matt Damon in here, Robert Downey Jr.'s in here, Florence Pugh is in here. So, I mean, like, even if you hadn't seen the movie and you just looked at the list of people casted, it's hard to see this being bad with that sort of cast because those are just, like, some of arguably some of the most talented people acting right now. So it's got that. And then um, Christopher Nolan. Now, I know that we gave him some flack for what was it? The Tenet movie. I think that was that his last movie. Yes, it that was. we that we reviewed. Yeah. So I know that we weren't like super high on that. And he had made some comments about, well, why he thought. His movie wasn't doing well or something like that, which at the time that just seemed to be the trend. 
ask old director why his movie is failing. Director blames audience. That that just kind of was par for the course at that time. But but really, despite all of that, Nolan is a very talented director. He is one of the best directors in the game right now. Definitely one of the more talented ones. And this, you could just tell he really tried to make something meaningful with this. So when you combine that talent and, and, and you could just, it felt like he cared about the subject matter. It felt like he um, wanted to do this story justice. And, and and he wanted to try to cover as much of Oppenheimer's life as he could um, and, and try to really touch on all the pivotal things that happened in his life. So and, and also just the very conflicting nature of who he is as the the in the main inventor of the atomic bomb and what that means and everything that was going on at the time with Japan and all of that. So, I mean, it's a very complicated thing, the very complicated morals. I mean, a lot of morally gray stuff going on with this person. So I think the movie, if you're going to do a movie about a person like that, you would need to be able to capture some of that. And I think that the movie does. I think that the movie does do that overall. Um, also he was also flexing that there's no CGI in this movie, like at all. That was a big thing that he talked about was like, he didn't use any CGI in this. And not only. I I do want to clarify for people out there though. When Nolan is saying no CGI, he is specifically saying that there is nothing in this movie that is just completely made from scratch digitally. There are digital effects in this movie. There are computer enhancements or graphical enhancements in this movie, but nothing is made whole cloth from nothing digitally in this movie. Okay. So okay. I, I I just want to make sure that, that there is clarity to that point for anybody that might not understand the difference between digital effects, digital enhancements, and then CGI. Because CGI is where there's nothing and you make it 100% on a computer. So. So it could have been a mix of practical effects mixed with digitally enhanced yeah 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 okay the the atom bomb explosion is digitally enhanced some of those uh effects it's doing early in the movie where it's kind of showing some things combined and like the sizzling and shit like that there's some digital enhancement in it but it's nothing going well it's just the night sky and we're creating nuclear explosion from nothing you know that's cgi because it's a computer-generated image. Okay, okay. And and even still, you'd have to think it'd be more difficult to film this way, regardless of how much digital is used or how much practical is used, to still to use no CGI, like, you know, nothing is 
just built from scratch from the computer is still quite a feat, especially just nowadays, because that just seems to be what every (laughs) film has or is using, or it just seems to be kind of what is the preferred method of telling stories today. So even his attempt to just do that is pretty, it, it just says something about who he is and how much this meant to him and how much he wanted you to feel this and how much he wanted this to look authentic and how much he wanted you to really understand the scale of this. So I think that all of that is also commendable. So yeah, overall, this is, um, and this is a three hour movie, but make no mistake about it. I mean, this is about Oppenheimer. This is about politics and, you know, a guy who created the atom bomb. So obviously there's going to be some political intrigue. There's going to be, uh, and this is a bunch of people who were scientists and, and, you know, physics people and chemists and stuff like that. So obviously going into this movie, this is not Barbie, you know, this is not a, this is not super Mario brothers. So if you're not prepared to really like, you know, immerse yourself into something that's a little more mature subject matter, then, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think anybody should walk into this and be like, I was expecting like a real fast roller coaster ride or something. That's not what this is. This is a very methodical, very like uh, methodically paced storytelling. But I didn't find it boring. And even though it was three hours, I think it, it, it was kept interesting enough. The script moves well enough. There's enough interesting things happening. And the acting is just so incredible. And they, they do so much with their dialogue and their acting that it had me the whole time. I didn't have a problem following this. Um, but I just put that, you know, that warning out there because I am a person who likes dialogue. You know, I like movies like this. So if it's not your cup of tea, don't expect your opinion to change watching this. Um, other than that, I mean, it's like I said, I, I, I enjoyed this. I, I appreciate it for what it is, you know, and its place and kind of what it is when it comes to cinema like this. I think that the movie did a very good job. I even looked up some videos on like, what were some of the inaccuracies or what did they do? You know, did they change anything to dramatize it for movies and stuff like that? And there are some changes that there are some things that they did differently in this that were different in the history of Oppenheimer. But overall, it was nothing where I felt like they just straight up lied to me or it, it felt like they they did it to try to make me feel a certain way. I think it really is kind of a movie where it just gives you the person and says, what do you think it all means? Like, how do you feel about him now? Or how do you think he must have felt being in this position and being this person? So I think it just lays it all out and kind of gives the viewer a chance to kind of just take it all in and, you know, come out with what you think it must have been 
what, you know, and think about like, what would you do if this were you, or if you were a person who invented or was the architect of something like this, what would that do to a person? How, uh, what, what kind of a person does it take to do something like this? So I think all of that's in there and the, the repercussions are in there. The aftermath is in there. The implications are in there. And it's all in this in as grand of a scale as I think the subject matter deserves to be. So, yeah, all in all, it was a it was a very good film, probably will wind up being a great film. And I imagine award season comes around. It's hard not to imagine Cillian Murphy in the lineup for best actor and Robert Downey Jr. might be in the lineup for supporting actor as well i think he was that good in this so yeah hats off to those people and nolan and his team on this film heather what about you yeah i think um i mean this movie has a lot it's it's a visually absolutely beautiful stunning movie um the cinematography just how they just they shoot the scenes like it's really visually amazing. Like there's just no doubt about that. And I think that, I mean, they had like a stacked cast, a stacked cast of people. They had so many big names in this movie. Um, while a lot of them didn't really get a ton of screen time. I think, um, I mean, I think the acting was really, really good. I think it was great acting Killian Murphy, I mean, it was good to see him sort of as like a leading man. And um, yeah, I think uh, he played off of the other kind of supporting characters well. Um, I think the, the issue or the weird thing with this movie for me is it, it, the fact that it's three hours long is I did feel the length of it, but it's weird because I feel like the story actually covered so much that it felt like it was going through certain things in the story so quickly that I don't really feel like I got to sit too much in the emotion of what just happened because they moved so fast through a lot of the events they covered. And I think that for me, um, it's weird because like what you were saying, Justin, about how it's, you know, like uh, <laughs> it's it, it it feels, I don't know specifically what you said, but feeling like it's a little bit of a slower, you know, kind of paced through because it's three hours, but they just, it's, it is very heavy dialogue and they're essentially covering in a way like two different stories going on here in this movie. So there is a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of things going on in this movie, but I feel like, um, I don't know. I just feel like I wasn't, as engaged in the story aspect of it as much as I wanted to be because I just feel like they just went through everything so fast. Like something big and important happens and then immediately they change to the next thing that they're going over in the movie. So I don't feel like I got to sit in my emotions of what was going on in this movie as much as I expected I would, if that makes sense. Um, but I guess, I guess all of that to say, like, I feel like the, the visuals and the acting are actually, they're better than the story itself. Not like the subject matter, but I guess how the story was told. I feel like the acting and the visuals are better 
than the the way the story was told in this movie. Um, I mean, the there was, I mean, I think a little bit more in one of the later acts, there's a lot of things that unfold and it's done, I think, really well. And I, I mean, in those moments, it was gripping. I was engaged. I was like, it was kind of like ping pong back and forth with this dialogue and these people going off of each other. And it was really cool. And it picked up a lot there for me. Um, but yeah, I feel like in that moment, that's when you're supposed to sort of be like, let's go through it. Let's let's fast pace go through. How did this happen? How did we get here? What actually unfolded, you know, internally for these people? But I don't know. I feel like there's moments, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it. But I mean, there's just moments when I feel like they quickly change um, I think the emotion that you're supposed to feel very quickly. And I just kind of wish it would have let you set in some of these emotions that it pulls, that it's trying to pull in the movie more. So that would be my biggest criticism with this movie. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, again, like I, I really love the people they brought into this. And I also just wish they would have given some of these like really big stars, um, a little bit more screen time in a way. Um, and then there are some characters that I feel aren't quite utilized the right way in this film. <laughs> I'm sure we could talk about that more also, but yeah, I, I feel like they, um, they, they might've missed some opportunities to do something a little bit more with a few of the characters. But um, again, like this is an undeniably beautiful film and really, really solid acting. So I agree. I think it's definitely going to be all over the award season. Like it's going to get probably a ton of awards um, and rightfully so for a lot of this. So yeah, I think it was, uh, it wasn't, it was a fine movie. Like I just kind of wish the story was told in a little bit more of a way that um, took me more through the emotions that I was expecting to feel from the movie, but it's still a, it's a, it's still a decent movie. So yeah, I'm I'm not as high on it as I think um a lot of other people probably were with this, but um it's definitely not at all a bad movie. It's just um I just had a way that I guess maybe I was expecting the story to be told that it didn't fully do that, but it was still I mean, it's it's definitely a unique and original movie. And for that, yeah, I mean I think it's still still a pretty decent movie. This movie is one of those movies that I think, however you feel, or whatever you expect to get out of it, is what you'll get. I don't think it's really going to change much with that. Because... This movie's to me felt like it was exactly what I thought I was going to get from this movie. It's going to be visually amazing. But it's going to be a narrative mess. It's going to be pretentious as fuck. And it is also going to 
attempt to justify things about the Oppenheimer character that really don't need to be justified. And that's what this movie was to me. The movie's incredibly long. And in lieu of having anything that amps up any sort of storytelling or any narrative points, because like Justin said, this isn't an action movie. This isn't, you know, anything like that. It's a very dialogue and person driven movie. And in lieu of any sort of physical conflict or anything like that, this movie to build tension kind of to me sloppily throws together three storylines at once. It's got, it's got the three story points throughout the movie and the way it cuts back and forth between them to me was sloppy. It kind of, to me, shows a lot of the narrative shortcomings that ultimately Christopher Nolan has in his directing. Now, you can't take away from the fact that this man knows how to just visually put a movie together, though. I mean, from beginning to end, I mean, this movie would almost have to be one of the most visually meticulous movies out there. There's almost not a thing out of frame. Every shot is specific. Color choices are specific. I think some of the color choices are pointless. And once again, add to the fact that Christopher Nolan doesn't know how to narratively change some of these things. We'll get more into that. The acting's fine. I think also this is a movie that just has so many actors in it that it just has to have big name actors be on the screen for 30 seconds because it doesn't really know, like they're not really an integral part of the story or anything like that. So you just kind of have people come and go throughout this movie and it's big name actors that are doing that. I don't know if necessarily that's a flaw in the movie I do feel like it is some wasted talent, though. But you do have some people that come and shine. I don't think... I mean, the thing is, with Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer, I don't really think... I'm not going to say it was a bad performance, but it was a very monotone performance to me. And I don't think that's his fault. I think that that's a fault of the, the person he was portraying. So maybe it is a good performance, but overall, I found the Oppenheimer character just kind of boringly monot- like monotone the entire time. <laughs> yeah. I do agree with you, Justin, though, that I, I don't see how Robert Downey Jr. doesn't get a Best Supporting Actor nod for this movie. Yeah, agree. To me, he was the best actor in this movie, hands down. There's a lot of other weird choices when it comes to acting. And this really isn't a spoiler, I suppose. Your two highest-billed female leads 
are crying in more shots than they're not in this movie. <laughs> and I find that a little odd. It's a weird choice to me. Once again, I don't know if that's necessarily a negative in this film or if it just fits and I found it odd either way. But just I just an observation. Yeah. <laughs> it's just something I noticed. Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh have more scenes where they're crying than not. And that's incredibly weird to me. It just really kind of makes me wonder if some of that was necessary. I do think also Christopher Nolan follows the trend that a lot of movies have done, especially recently. When it comes to figures that you are doing a biopic about that have controversial elements to their past, that they go and they pick and choose the ones they can kind of the easiest explain away. And the ones that are actually deep and truly problematic and truly show the core of what that person was, the movie ignores. While I've never seen it, I've seen people talk about it. I've heard people talk about it. I've talked to people about it. The Elvis movie ignores a lot about Elvis. But the, 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 the complicated issue it could tackle and it attempted to tackle and it addressed in the movie is that Elvis notoriously stole music from black artists. And they have scenes in the movie to, to like, to, I don't want to say justify it, but to explain it away. They do a lot of that also in the movie The Wolf of Wall Street. The guy that Leonardo DiCaprio portrays is not a good guy. And I know they try to show that that's the case because he's greedy, he does a lot of drugs, he womanizes, does all those things. Because those are the things that are easy to explain away. They don't go into the fact that he, as much so that like, they're like, they talk about that he screwed over other rich people to get money. But they kind of blow over the fact that he destroyed people that were middle class and lower classes lives to make money. There's also a lot of sexual uh, assault allegations and whatnot against that guy too. But what did they do? They popularized him. He's the wolf of Wall Street. They kind of showed the charismatic elements of it. Like I said, they used those things to kind of explain away the easy things to confront, like drug use and alcoholism and greed and womanizing. Those are easy things to kind of just show flaws in a character when you ignore the other things. They do that in this movie too. They're like, oh man, Oppenheimer, you know, kind of had issues with the ladies. Then they kind of want to ignore a lot of the other aspects of, of him. They want to ignore the fact that him choosing was at Los Alamos in New Mexico completely 
disrupted the Native American community that was there. The indigenous peoples that were there, they kind of loosely mention it when they're like, oh, yeah. They've got, you know, some burial stuff there. No, they had a lot more than that there. Then he goes and completely disrupts their entire community. For eternity. Because it's still a military base. And he picked that site. He knew what it was. But, you know, they don't really want to dwell into that. Because that's not an easy thing to explain away that he had those kind of beliefs in him that their land and their hunting and their fishing and their burial sites and their ancestral sites, they don't matter to us. Because that's a lot of a harder thing to talk about. Like I said, you can explain away womanizing. You can't explain away being a racial bigot. And they want to ignore those things. You know, because they want to talk about how, you know, it's big that he was, you know, anti-nuclear weapon after World War II. They don't want to talk about the fact that well, you're building a bomb. You 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 can't then change your mind and go, Oh man, really shouldn't use that bomb. They lightly touch that. But it's very much in passing. They also, you know, honestly, they should have shown the, the effects of things like that and what it had on Japan. They did it through these flashbacks in this movie. I know I'm getting kind of in this spoilers. I'll shut up in a second. But they don't show the true horror of what this man created. And what it would be used for. And the fact that more or less at the time he didn't care. Because those aren't easy things to explain. Those aren't easy topics to address. And so once again, this is another movie of a, by all accounts, horrible person that is glorified for the sake of, you know, you get to do some cool visual shit in a movie. And then on top of that, you took a highly religious Hindu text and decided to put it in the middle of a sex scene. Because you know, Christopher Nolan's all about respecting other people and their cultures. Super great person. I am a huge bummer in this segment. Recommendations and scores? <laughs> yeah. Sure. Recommendations and scores. Heather, what about, or uh, go, not what about you. You haven't gone yet. <laughs> Nobody's gone yet. Heather, go. Um, yeah, I do recommend it. I do think it's, uh, it's one of those movies that you're going to, you, you're, if, if for nothing else to just see the spectacle of it or to see the, 
what is the hype about this movie, right? Like, I feel like even if you're just a little bit curious, then go check it out. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it is a, a long time investment. It is three hours long. So you just got to be, you know, comfortable in a theater for three hours if you're seeing it now. Um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely worth checking out. And yeah, while I did personally have issues with like, I guess the the specific way that they went about telling the story. I do think that um, it's going to interest a lot of people. I think a lot of people are going to be really um, intrigued by how it's told, you know, and I also, yeah, again, like how beautiful this is is sort of, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It really is. And I didn't expect anything else from it. You could even tell from the trailer how beautiful this was going to be. I also uh, forgot to mention this earlier, but I really like their use of music and sound in this movie. Um, I think like even there's moments too, when they have lack of sound. And I think that they do a good job in this movie of like amplifying the things they need to with that aspect of things and pulling back when they need to on those things. Um, kind of setting a little bit more of the tone of what you should be feeling in the moment with that. So I think that they did a really good job with that as well. Um, yeah, it's, it, it is solid acting. Um, and yeah, I mean, Killian Murphy is, he's, I've always thought he was a really good actor and I do agree with you, Sterling. I do feel like, I think Oppenheimer himself must've just been a very, you know, even keeled all the time sounding person <laughs> because we've seen Killian Murphy revved up and amped up. Like we've seen him do that in your face type of thing. So his restraint in playing this character, I, it had to have been a choice of who he was specifically playing in this movie. But I do like how he bounced off of everybody else. Um, yeah. Again, probably a, a few missed opportunities with some of the people that were cast that could have been um, in the film more things like that. But um, yeah, it's definitely worth watching once. Um, I, I find it to be a, it's a decent movie. I don't think it's a great movie. I think visually it's great, but the movie itself, I would, I would say it's, it's decent. Um, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it 70 um, bringing in the sheets out of 100. Justin, what about you? Yeah, I'm going to recommend it as well. Um, I really liked it. I thought that it was very good. I think that it's um, not just like acted okay. I think that it was superbly acted. I think everybody showed up whatever scenes they got. I think that they nailed them. I think that they did the 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 best job possible with the script and the material that they had. And overall, I didn't walk out of this feeling like I witnessed the story of a hero. I mean, I didn't feel that way at all. You know, I think that what I felt was, man, this is a person who is responsible for saving a lot of lives, but he's also responsible for killing a lot of people. And the moral complexity of war and what was going on at the time and the decisions people were making and 
the United States at the time. It's kind of, you know, I don't want to armchair quarterback too much, you know, too much of what was going on at that time when, I mean, that was just such a unique time in America and people were scared. There were, you know, people, Pearl Harbor, people were bombed at Pearl Harbor. So you had all these angry people, you know, that was just an unprecedented time in American history. So I think a time like that does bring about very morally complex things, very morally complex people and very morally complex decisions that have to be made. So I think what this film needed to do was touch on both sides of that and how complex that can be and how, you know, not any, you know, in none of those decisions could have been easy. I just don't think that's was the nature of what it was and what was going on. So I think overall the movie at least does that. I think it kind of touches on some of that stuff. It also touches on people who had different agendas politically, what was going on, you know, and, and kind of like, I saw it as kind of like this tale of like man's capacity to do evil also, um, as well as just like how sometimes, and as well as how things that, that, that happen beyond our control and like in war and stuff also brings that out of people. So I think a a little of all of that is in there. Um, So I think that it's good for those reasons. Um, And I think if you're somebody that's looking for something like that, you're looking for a story that's a little more mature. You're looking for something that's a little more kind of uh, personal to something to the, the history of America and things like that. Then I think that this is a good film for you. And if it motivates people to look up more of the story or look up more of Oppenheimer, because it definitely did that for me. I kind of knew who Oppenheimer was as far as what he did and what he invented, but I knew nothing about the man. I knew nothing about the person really, or anything like that. I mean, maybe we learned this shit in school, but I mean, that was years ago. I don't remember none of that shit. So a lot of this was new stuff to me. You know, I didn't know. And then when I went back and looked at videos of him and how he was acting and how he was talking and his demeanor, I think Killian Murphy did a great job because the videos I saw of the actual man matched in a lot of ways, the mannerisms and the tone that I saw Killian portray in the film. So I think it's good, man. That's what I I should have done. I should have looked up like, what is his demeanor like beforehand? Cause I was, I, I feel like it had to have been the choice of like who he was portraying because I mean, Kelly Murphy can act, you know what I mean? So yeah, I should have looked up like, how does he sound? What's his demeanor beforehand? And I didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, 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 watch when you go back and look at some of that stuff, you'll be like, damn. Okay. Killian, you, you did all right. You know what I mean? So, um, and, and yeah, I think that with, a lot of these like historical kind of movies like this, 
you're always going to get some inaccuracies. You're always going to get them changing some things to make it more dramatic and stuff like that. And I think this just up to the person to determine how much you want that to affect you, how much you want those things to, you know, I think it's up to you to decide how much do you think that affects the story of how the man was, or if you feel like the movie was trying to manipulate you and stuff, fair game. You know, I can't tell anybody how they should feel about it. I can only express how I felt. And I felt like for this, for such a morally complex thing, I think both sides of that are demonstrated in the film. So with that being said, um, um, we'll go. And then, and then also on top of everything you guys said, just the fact that it was visually, it's great. It's, it looks spectacular. The cinematography, it's just a visual feast for the eyes as well. So all of that to me adds up to a, a very good film. So with that being said, we'll go, um, We'll go 90, um, you know, if you're going to question uh, <laughs> Emily Blunt about some things, you better be ready for some heat. Boy, <laughs> she brought it in that scene uh, out of 100. I don't recommend it. Very long. I have a lot of issues with it. But I will say this. If you don't give a fuck about my recommendation, and you're going to go see it anyway, I guess go see it in theaters. Because Christopher Nolan doesn't give a fuck about any of you watching shit at home. (laughs) That is kind of (laughs) true. He's already said, you're not watching the movie how he meant it to be watched. So if you care about that, sure, go watch it in cinemas <laughs> or go watch it in what the one of like 40 theaters that actually can show it in its true format <laughs> right? in yeah. this entire fucking country because he only really cares about those places. He don't care about you seeing it in a regular theater. He didn't even care about you seeing it in a regular IMAX. He just cares about the IMAX 70 millimeter dual laser theaters. That is the longest fucking name I'd have to say for a single fucking theater. Jeez. I'm mad I couldn't watch it like that now. Like, (laughs) as good as it looked in the theater I was in, and, like, I had had considered maybe driving to Dallas because they have a theater there to do it. But, dude, it was sold out. Like, you couldn't get into one of those theaters. Like, it was sold out for those showings. So, apparently, he struck a nerve with people and and at first I thought, well, are people going to be annoyed by this? But actually, I was shocked with how many people tried to see it the way that he said that it was intended to see. I wondered if the public would be turned off by that. But actually, more people tried to see it the way he intended. So I don't know, man. I think there's something very like. I guess I could see how one person could look at that and say that's very pompous of him or that's very, like, arrogant. But then also I think there's something kind of, like, artistic about it and kind of bold of him to be like, nah, man, 
I want it to look like this because this would capture the essence of that time period. And I, and I want it to be, you know, there's also something admirable about somebody just being like, hell yeah, man, I'm doing this shit my way. You know, it's my vision. I want it done this way. I want it filmed this way. So I don't know. And I think most of, for the most part, the public responded because people are trying to watch it that way. I don't think most people are trying to watch it that way. I think it's just if it's in your area, some people are. Because the thing is, is and the reason why I have issues with that, A, the closest one of those theaters to me is three hours. I ain't a young kid no more. I ain't driving no three hours for a fucking movie. I've done it before. I ain't doing it again. I was a fucking dumbass kid when I was doing that shit. And we lived in Midland and they weren't getting shit. You know, other places were getting shit. So, yeah, I had to drive to see some shit. I'm not like this movie's playing down the street from me. I'm not driving three hours to see it in some special way. But then also a majority of the fucking world can't see it how you mean it to be sent. Like you want it to be seen. There are entire countries that don't even that this movie's showing in that can't show it like that. And I think that that's why I have a problem with that idea is that you are literally saying only a small population that is even willing to go see this movie can even see it how I mean I meant for it to be seen. I get what you're saying. There is a sort of artistic flair for it. But to me, that takes away also from the magic that is movies. You take away from the fact that movies are also meant to be watched at home. I mean, this is not 1942 anymore where shit was only in theaters. Like, this is 2023. Shit is also still meant to be watched at home. And by designing your movie to be of a lesser quality just because somebody's watching it at home, I think is disingenuous to the whole idea of what is special about movies, especially now. But that's neither here nor there. I see some of that. But I also think, why can't it also go the other way too? Why can't directors be like, I want to make this for the theater. Why can't you also go the other way? Why do you have to be like, oh, everything I make has to be so home friendly? Why can't you go just, why can't you have the artistic choice to say, I'd rather make it for the theater and for you to watch it like this. If you want the best experience, you got to watch it this way. Sure, you can watch it in a regular theater. You can watch it. It's not like he took those options away, but he's saying, but I wanted to make it this way because artistically, that's how I felt it should be made. And I didn't want the pressure of because we watch movies different now or because we do it different now. I didn't want that to conflict with my vision. So I can see it that way, too. You know, I can see both sides of that. And I think ultimately it's the choice of the 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 artist, the director doing it. So, I mean, I feel like it's just an artistic choice that, you know, you either fall in line with that or you're mad at it. But I feel like the fact that he made the choice is the important thing, though. I don't think he should be pressured 
to make it a certain way if that's not his artistic vision? It's it's not pressured. It's the fact that it, it makes you an elitist asshole. Like, that's that's all my point is. You can make it however the well, fuck to you, you want. But. That's what it is, though. That is literally saying only certain people are going to be privileged enough to watch a movie how I want it to be watched. That's what that had, is. If he had come at it maybe in a different way, like, hey, if you actually want to have an even better experience... Like, if you see it like this, you know, but I think it was, and from what I remember, the tone of, of how he said it was just like, I want it to be seen this way. That's how you should watch it. If he had just come at it maybe with like a, you know what, if you want it to be the best experience, this is probably how you want to do it. Like, I can't remember exactly what he said, but I feel like sometimes it might be just sort of like the tone of how they tell you like to watch the movie like it's it's the whole idea of like yes they're the ones who made the movie and so they're telling you like this was my vision for it and I want you to see it this way but it's also that weird thing of oh no they're telling me how I need to watch my movie (laughs) like because and I feel like this is where sort of like an example I could think of for me is like Steven Spielberg movies they are incredible in theaters, but they are also movies that you can rewatch them years later at home and they're still as good story-wise and visually. You still understand what was happening. So I feel like, yes, it makes sense if you want it to be a great experience for the theater, but I guess for me, like... I I don't know. I feel like because I love to watch stuff at home too later and be like, oh, I remember loving this movie. Let me watch it at home too. It should still be a great experience for you to be able to enjoy those things from home too. So I definitely see both sides of it because I get that like if they have a vision, certainly, you know, it was for a reason, you know, but I also see the point of for me, I'm like, I, I feel like if you want, if you care and you're that passionate about the movie you're making, make it in a way to where it's going to be more available the way you want it to be seen for everybody to see it that way. So, yeah, I kind of see both sides of it, but I kind of lean more towards, oh, no, like, because I, I think I even remember in the, one of the trailers it said, see it on the biggest screen you possibly can. And I was just like, man, he is really just trying to tell us how we need to watch his movie. <laughs> like but I get it. It's a massive movie, but it was just funny to me because it was after I had seen the stuff he said about this is the right way to watch it. And then he's just like, see it on the biggest screen ever. And you're just like, he is just very particular about how he wants people to see his movies. Like, and I just feel like it can come across as if the actual, like what movies are supposed to be for, which is just the entertainment value of other people and telling these stories for people. It can get lost if you want to only be that specific about how you are presenting it to people. But anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interfere with your comment you were making. Well, the thing is though, is they already do that. You already, you, you, you already, if you want it to be, uh, you know, special for the theaters and stuff like that. You just shoot the movie in IMAX because that can still down convert to a normal theater in a more standard ratio. That's already what people do. Like you just shoot your movie in IMAX format 
and then down convert it down. It's less of a transition than what he was wanting to do with it because IMAXs are still more ubiquitous right now across this country than the special 70 millimeter dual laser IMAXs. You know, that's already a standard thing in theaters to do. If you want the grandest scale you could possibly do for your movie, you shoot it with IMAX cameras. That's already a standard practice. You know, there's nothing against having a better experience in theaters because that's how movies are inherently done anyway. You know, you're, the, the way they mix sound is it's mixed for theaters. It's not mixed, you know, for homes. It's mixed for theaters. You know, having 15.1 surround sound and, or 15.2 surround sound and all those things. That's already a ubiquitous, like it's already a standard practice in Hollywood to do things that way. To give an enhanced experience to seeing it in theaters and then doing an even more enhanced version of it in IMAX. Like that's a standard practice. My issue is the fact that then he wants it in even the smallest subset of screens even possible. Like that'd be like making, I shot this movie for 4DX theaters. You're only going to get the best experience if you see it in a 4DX theater. Like, that's why I have issues with it. I made this movie only for people who have 2020 vision or something. Well, yeah, like, like that. it's, that's like, what yeah. is weird to me because, like, but I think that's the artist's choice. He's got see, that. The, the that's person, fine. the artist needs to have that choice. Yeah, but it that, shouldn't. I think the choice needs to exist. Yeah, you could have the choice that still makes you a pompous asshole. Because, like I said, you're going, hey, whatever country, you can't watch this movie how I meant for you to watch it because you don't have any of these theaters. That's an elitist attitude to go, hey, I want to make sure a majority of the people that see this movie can't see it how I meant for it to be seen. That's gatekeeping. Maybe. I mean, in some ways I can see that, but I think he actually stands to lose money if he doesn't. I mean, what what would the motivation be other than just his artistic choice? Like every other, really, he should just be trying to make the most money he could with it, right? So why wouldn't he make those other choices if it meant he could just make more money doing that. So I feel like he made the choice because he felt like it needed to be, he felt like filming it that way was going to be more authentic to this story that he was telling. So I feel like he made the choice because, you know, regardless of that, he wanted to make the right choice for his film and the consequences be what they may, but I'm going to make it the way that I envision it and I see it made. And I kind of respect that, you know, I respect his, him wanting, him choosing to do that despite the consequences and being, and living with those consequences. He knew that the theaters were limited. He knew that you wouldn't be able to see it the way he intended, but he probably figured, oh, well, even if you can't see it that way, you can still go to a theater and see it. It's still going to come out on streaming. It's still going to, you know, you're still going to be able to see it. It's just that I think he really chose that because he had a vision and he did not want to compromise his vision. And I think there's something respectable about that, even if it comes 
from an asshole or somebody pompous or whatever the artist is. I think I support the artist's choice to be that way, you know, and let the cards fall where they may. The thing is, is you could do those conversions in normal screens. Changing to a 4.3 ratio, you can artificially do that in, in screens. There's a reason why none of them did that. Like none of the ones you see regular artificially go to a 4.3 ratio. Because if that is, if you, what you're saying is true, Justin, in the dual laser ones, when it goes to black and white, it goes to a 4.3 ratio. But he wanted to do a 4.3 ratio without black bars. You could have still done a 4.3 ratio in normal cinemas in those scenes. If that's what you really wanted, if that was the artistic choice, because you wanted that to be in a 4.3 ratio, because that's what TV screens were during like that time frame, then normal cinemas would have had artificial 4.3 conversions in them too. That's not, that's why to me, it's not an artistic choice as much as it is to me, an elitist choice because you limit everything. And that's the thing is he, to me at this point in his career, He's not like nobody's holding him back anymore. He's not getting studio notes like normal people. He gets to go make whatever fucking movie he wants to make. That's what he does now, especially now that he left Warner Brothers because he had an exclusive deal with Warner Brothers. Now he's not. Now he's a free agent. Now he's like Prince. When Prince, after he changed his name to the symbol and got out of that Sony deal, how he was just able to go from record label to record label and walk up to him and go, hey, I'm doing a one-album deal with you. And they were like, yes, go ahead. We're just going to go ahead and print you a check and you just wheel us bags of money because that's what was going to happen. It's the same thing here. And because if I I understand it didn't affect the box office, and that's the thing is it's not going to affect the box office because still – a majority of the people are just going to go see it. Because like I was saying, there is not a single IMAX theater in the state of Illinois that has the formatting perspective that Christopher Nolan wants for his movie. So you have the third most populous city in this fucking country doesn't have a theater that can do that. Neither does the state of Wisconsin. The closest one to any of that is Indianapolis randomly. Somehow Indy has that. What the fuck are they doing in Indianapolis? But still, you have all of that set up like that. And to me, if it was an artistic choice, the the normal theaters and the IMAX theaters would have still done the 4-3 ratio. And the fact that they didn't, and I know they didn't, I saw it on a regular fucking screen. It did not change to a 4-3 ratio. I saw it with my own eyes that it didn't do it. That's why to me it's not an artist, like a solely artistic choice because you still could have done it. You know what I mean? Like it, it was still possible. Like that's something that things they, they can do. I could do that on our YouTube videos for fuck's sake. Like all our YouTube videos, I could cut us to a 4-3 ratio just... Back and forth constantly. Like this whole rant I'm going right now, I could put in a 4-3 ratio if I wanted to. And I just might. That to me would be like, that would to me prove it was an artistic choice that is just elevated. 
by the IMAX 70 millimeter dual laser format. But considering that's the only one that does it, not the only one that could do it, the only one that the only version of it that does do it to me is why it is not a solely artistic choice. Because I would have seen it then. And I just realized I am still in my recommendation and score. I haven't even scored this movie yet. Let me score this real quick and we'll go to spoilers and we can continue this. Just let me give this score real quick. So we're not going completely insane on this already what is going to be an insane episode. Uh, You know, I had a fairly okay day today. (laughs) So I'm going to give it, I'll give it a 40. Because Robert Downey Jr. was really good. And uh, I, I still, like I said, I can't take away from the fact that this is a visually stunning movie. Regardless, it is still a visually stunning movie. And that is something Christopher Nolan knows how to do. Can't take that away from the man. I think he is a pompous asshole, but he is a pompous asshole that knows how to make things look very, very good. And there are worse traits in a movie director than your movie looking really good. (laughs) Yes. True. He don't compromise, man. I respect that about the man. He don't compromise. Oh, no. I fucked this up. What did I give it a 40? Okay, never mind. I figured it out. Figured it out. Cinescore for this movie is a 67. <laughs> we'll, round, we'll round it up to a 70. Why not? We'll round it to a 70. You are having we'll, a good day, I we'll guess. Give it, we'll give it that Justin is very passionate about this movie. <laughs> round Extra <up>. three points. <laughs> Spoilers. I do think it's funny that like people who would listen to this, if they're like, yeah, let's just see what they review it as. And like, we probably have the lo- lowest score for this movie. <laughs> not technically. Else. Just for the oh, sure really? fact that since it's not 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, that means people have given it bad uh, okay. scores. That's, that's fair, yeah. And inherently have to be worse than ours. You okay, know. that's fair to say. Anyways. So. Spoilers. Do you want to continue the discussion on the format or do you want to move on? I'm just asking, do you have like more to say about it? I could keep going, but if nobody else really has anything to add... I don't feel like beating a dead horse. No, I'm I good. I, I I'm learning. And you <laughs> okay. explain yours. I think we're good. All right. That's fair. Um, I am convinced, though, that Christopher Nolan is a virgin. And I don't think he's ever had sex. And I think that it's explained by the fact that this is the first movie he's done with sex scenes. And they're not good. I don't feel like they come from a person that's had sex. Because they are awkwardly bad. And also, one of them, to me, which was the worst, was I think the first one you see in the movie. Where him and Florence Pugh are having sex. And then she just starts crying in the middle of it. Because like I said, they weirdly cry so much in this movie. 
And then she stops and gets up and goes and finds this book written in Sanskrit to have him read what is considered the famous Oppenheimer quote. Now I become death destroyer of worlds because they had to shoehorn that into this movie, but for whatever reason had to do it in the middle of a sex scene, which is why so many people in the country of India are so mad about this movie because that is essentially incredibly disrespectful. It would be the equivalent of having a sex scene, somebody then stopping and going and opening the Bible and started reading something like the 23rd Psalm to then just go, oh, I'm now horny again from you reading this. Let's go fuck again while I hold this book. It's an incredibly weird scene. And like I said, it convinces me that Christopher Nolan's never had sex. That is just something I noticed in this movie. Um, I weirdly enough went into so many of my issues with this movie uh, earlier. Um, I can't expand upon it, I suppose. Uh, I do have issues with the fact that I feel like if you're going to show that he had a moral quandary about this movie and all this other stuff, I think you show either recreations or facsimiles or even just images or something from the devastation of what these bombs did in Japan. And I, I, I think that that's a, a, a big point to be made in something like this. I think if you're really wanting to lean into what the horrors of war are and how you could envision something in your head, but because you're so one-sided or focused or whatever, like Oppenheimer supposedly was, that you can lose sight of some of the other costs of things. And then showing that would have, to me, balanced the scales a little more in that regard. Because I think it is disingenuous to have him having these weird visions of things instead of actually showing the real horror of what it was. I think that that's the soft way to go with it. I think that that is the lesser way to go. And I understand also that when it comes to morality and things like that, that people can change, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the same person I was a fucking year ago. I'm sure as fuck, not the same person I was two years ago or even, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you know, in, in the way I think even, you know, morally speaking, all these things, people can grow and they can adapt and all these things. I think it was the weak way to go though. To be like, hey, yeah, so excited we just built that bomb. So excited, yeah. Totally built the biggest, you know, most powerful destructive weapon the world had ever seen at that point. And following it up literally with the next scenes being like, hey, BT dubs. What if we don't use this bomb? I literally was just so excited that I made. 
this being in back-to-back scenes felt off to me, felt disingenuous to try to kind of show that like, oh, Oppenheimer did change his ways because it wasn't that quick in real life. It was, you know, things like that. I kind of have issues with that to kind of just soften the moral, you know, conundrums that he had. So I kind of think that it would have been a little bit better if they had actually shown some of the real changes that caused some of those things. Because some of it has to do with the horror of what it was. So I do have issues with that. I also did think the nuclear explosion was a little anticlimactic. Especially for, you know, months, Christopher Nolan had been going on about it was the largest explosion to ever be made for a film. I wasn't impressed. I thought there was going to be more to it. I thought that that scene was a little anticlimactic. I do think it was well shot. I like the fact that it kind of went silent and you're kind of just seeing this glow from the explosion and all these things. And then you get hit by that rush of sound and that rush of devastation. I think it's well shot, but narratively speaking, I think that they kind of dropped the ball on that a little bit, especially like I said, with the fact that it was so hyped up. You have the director of the movie just hyping that scene so much. I don't think it's anywhere near what he what he promised it would be. I do have issues kind of in general with how they wanted to do some of these things. I kind of feel like so much emphasis they had on him being a womanizer was very unbalanced. I think they did it to, you know, I mean, that is a big part of Oppenheimer and it, you know, it was things that were brought up against him and things like that. But by having like sex scenes with just one of them to then just have it be that, you know, other affairs are just kind of briefly mentioned or cast aside or they're one like little one liner things to me just kind of feels like they did that shit just to have Florence Pugh naked in some scenes. And I'm kind of over that in movies at this point. I don't, you know, it's 2023. It's not, you know, 1989. Do we still need stuff like that in movies just to be adult? I mean, and and there's, you know, it's fine if you want to have nudity in your movie, if, you know, everybody's fine with it. Florence Pugh is fine with it and she wouldn't contractually obligated and forced to and all this other stuff. I mean, that's fine. I'm just looking at the movie now going, but, but really, especially also when you had the second most awkward sex scene I've ever watched since the movie Showgirls. Whenever they, they're doing that in the chair, whenever he's recounting the fact that he had an affair, I get what that was. It was meant to be like that visualization on the character of him or Emily Blunt's character's point of view and all this other stuff. But I just thought it was poorly done. And not really worth it in the end. I have issues with how it was going back and forth between the stories. 
I have issues with the fact that every time it went to Strauss, it had to go black and white. Because I feel like that was a crutch. So the, the, the scenes that are in the Strauss perspective, it's a crutch that they went to black and white to me because I feel like they were not confident enough in their ability to truly show that without it going to black and white. That narratively or storytelling-wise, they weren't confident that the distinction between Strauss's point of view and Oppenheimer's point of view was clear. So they had to go to black and white for those scenes because I do not think it was necessary. I'd understand the format change more than anything, at least especially the ones that are in the congressional hearing. I'd understand that even more then, but when they kept that formatting and that, that, that grayscale in all of the scenes that were not in the congressional hearing, but just because they were from Strauss's perspective, It just felt, like I said, like a crutch. I don't think it was necessary. I don't think it really added enough to what this movie was. And to me, it shows weakness in their ability to completely cohesively tell their story to show those distinctions without a visual representation with it. I think, you know, in, in tying into that, doing the Q clearance renewal hearing, the Strauss hearing, and the story of him building the atomic bomb simultaneously, cutting between all three, I think was done to cover up holes or parts of the story they didn't want to tell. They didn't want to show this in one form, they would just kind of drop one line in another and things like that. I think it's because they cohesively did not know what they wanted to tell completely as far as the story goes, or if it was because they were just uninterested in some parts and just wanted to gloss over it as quickly as possible. Like I said, they did that very much with how the, the handling of the displaced indigenous peoples were from the construction of that military base from the area that was directly because of Oppenheimer. So I have issues with that. Um, I mean, I kind of feel like so many people in this movie were just there to be a name in the movie and in the credits and stuff like that. And also when it comes down to it too, in the end, why was it necessary to have Casey Affleck in this movie? You have all this stuff and you go, hey, you know what this movie doesn't have enough of? People that have sexually assaulted people. <laughs> we need more of those people in this movie. Yeah. Call up Casey because he's not doing anything. Let's get him in here. Playing a role that anybody could have played. There's nothing about that role that was inherently needed to be Casey Affleck. You could have had any number of other actors in that role. But you made the choice to do it. And that doesn't really sit that well with me either. I did really dig those scenes though, when it's like they were doing the atomic ship and it's all crackling and stuff. You see all the swirlies and shit. I thought that was really kind of cool. I, I, I do like the way they did the color accents in Killian Murphy's eyes. They very much enhanced the, 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 the blue in his eyes. 
you know, those are really cool techniques that they did with that stuff. You know, and I agree with you, Justin, that, that scene with Emily Blunt and that Q clearance hit hearing, when they really think they're going to catch her, get her to, 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 to trip up and stumble. And she's just doing those witty clapbacks at them. Oh, I really dug that scene. That was really cool. Really nice scene. But I felt like scenes like that were a little too few and too far between to truly invest any more in this movie with that. Um, Justin, go ahead and go. Cool. So from the outset, I thought that just Killian Murphy's acting, and I think that that was another uh, big part of his acting was his eyes. You know, a, a lot of times when you look at like casting interviews and when people are talking about like who they pick for roles and things like that, they sometimes talk about a person's eyes and how be, how convincing their their eyes can look in a scene, how pleading they can look, how withholding they can look. You know, there's this whole big thing about how certain actors just have an ability with their eyes. And he definitely, I think if there's, if there's any actor or up and coming actor looking for a lesson on how to use your eyes, I think it's definitely this movie. Cause there was just something about how he was able to gaze in this and just whether it, you know, and you could just tell from how Killian was looking, whether he was feeling some sort of guilt or whether he was feeling determination or whether he was feeling hurt, but trying not to show it or, you know, whatever it called for. I just think he did really an incredible job with that. That was just one of the noticeable things about his acting in this was his use of his eyes. So that was just something that just sort of, and there are just specific scenes where the, you can tell the cameras focused on that and what he's doing with his eyes. So I think that that was something that uh, just definitely stood out about just how they were filming this and how he was um, playing the Oppenheimer character. Um, I feel like early in the movie, when you're just kind of getting to understand kind of who he is, he really strikes me as somebody who wasn't all there himself. He seemed sort of troubled himself with just how he was being bullied and everything. And then, uh, almost poisoned his teacher with that apple and everything. I mean, he tried to kill his teacher. And at first I was like, did that really happen? Looked it up. Yep. He did attempt to do that. And I was like, damn, you know, this dude had, and like, when you look up the story of him, uh, he really did sort of have, even though he grew up in a privileged family, just his mental health wasn't, all there, you know, they talked about his, um, his battles with like 
the, you know, his depression, his anxiety, you know, all these different things. So he was going through a lot of different stuff, just even as a child, but he was smart. You know, he was a genius, skipped several grades, like graduated early. You know, he did a lot uh, as a child, but I thought it was interesting just um, how troubled he was, you know, um, and maybe one thing I wish the movie would have touched on maybe was a little more of how troubled this childhood was. Even if you we could have done that through flashbacks or um, anything like that, because when I found out more about his childhood, I was like, damn, that should have been in here. But I don't know. It felt like they just made the choice to show him kind of because uh, I want to say the movie started with him. What? early teens or maybe like late teens college. He was in a university, I believe when the film started. So yeah. he was, a, yeah, he was a little bit older. I wish they had showed more about his childhood because I mean, when you look at, cause when you look at like a historical documentary on him, which just giving you facts and stuff, his childhood does play a lot into kind of, who he is and what he becomes and stuff like that. But I just going through this, it just felt like what Nolan was trying to do was, was sort of sort of match the morally complicated kind of situation that comes with this bomb and bombing another country and, all of that and and just the, the 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 morally gray implications that come with war i think what he was trying to do was sort of match that up with how complicated of a man oppenheimer was and i think that that was kind of something he was trying to do that that's why we were seeing the the womanizing and the multiple affairs and you know florence Pugh, that woman I found out too that that woman was very emotionally troubled and things like that. Like I found out she was very kind of unstable and stuff like that. They were probably drawn to each other because of mental health issues. And I think that that's why you kind of had these awkward things with the sex and her crying and stuff like that. And she, and the care and she, I say the character, but the woman does commit suicide. So all of that. So I think all of that was sort of par for the course with me. Although that thing about that you said about India's, I'm just like, damn man, but I could see how they could be um, upset about that. But I think it also kind of speaks to Oppenheimer and these people who aren't taken into account, you know, other cultures and other people and other things when they when they're doing these things, you know, well, when you're constructing this bomb and you're trying, you, you know, I feel like a lot of things, a lot there are a lot of people and things that you wouldn't be taken into consideration until after the fact, until you make some realizations on your own. So, well, the thing is with that scene though is I don't think that scene actually happened. Like it was just, oh, you're saying it was just created for the movie. Yes. Yeah, yeah. and I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm just saying that, but it kind of lines. But what I'm saying is that I think 
I could see a person like this not considering, you know, just like just like how he would have had to have foregone the considerations of some of the people in Japan, um, just like they were just, you know, foregoing some of those people. You mentioned the Native Americans, and that was mentioned in the film also and stuff like that. So I think it kind of matches up is what I'm saying with kind of how this person was conducting himself at the time. It didn't seem like Oppenheimer just didn't, it didn't seem like there was much consideration um, for quite a few things. You know, he wasn't always, I wouldn't say he wasn't always acknowledging, or at least he, it just seemed like he was just a person who was able to mentally block off one thing in order to focus on something else like with his womanizing or with the complexities of this bomb or with how some of the people he associated with were communists and the trouble that that ultimately caused him and and things of that nature. He seemed to be somebody who just always sort of had these morally complex things going on around him. You know, it it seemed like it was just a constant part of this life, like his life, like. And and to just sit and think just about how crazy that must have been, like you're constructing this bomb that the U.S. is telling you is going to save American lives and things like that. But, you know, the whole time you're going to be killing hundreds and thousands of people. Some of your friends are communists or people of the Communist Party and stuff like that. And kind of tooting that line at the time of Adolf Hitler. And then you're on. But then on this side, you've got all these multiple affairs and stuff like that. And then you've got your own mental health troubles and stuff like that. So my goodness, man. It's it's a wonder that this guy just didn't implode under the weight of everything that was going on around him. You know, that's sort of like the amazing thing about it. And like I said, I just as it's going through this narrative and you're seeing all of these things and you're seeing all of these complex things he's dealing with. It's just a wonder how he even kept it all together, you know. Um, on top of being in charge of all of these scientists and uh, all of these things and the, the people arguing about what to do, different theories, stuff like that. So, man, just I, I couldn't imagine what it must be like to be someone like this, let alone go through that, especially um, at, at the time of war that it was. So I think like... Interestingly enough, the 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 hat that he was wearing, it, it w- was kind of something that became synonymous with his look. But also, I was just aware of all these hats that this man was trying to wear. And I think w- when you get to the end of this, you see the consequences of a lot of those things that happened to him. You know, he... Never, he never really was the same after that, after inventing that and creating that. And then it felt like he did spend the latter 
part of his life trying to atone in some ways. But how could you ever fully atone for something like that? You know, how how could you ever kind of it's almost like, you know, what you did, you did. And that's kind of what you have to live with. And so you feel like there, even though maybe he didn't deserve all the consequences, you you knew that there were inevitably there were going to be some. And so I think um, whenever the movie gets to that latter half and it's more about what the, these these hearings and what was going on politically and what was going on with Strauss and everything like that. I thought that the movie was exciting in those parts too. And I see what you were kind of saying earlier, Heather, about how it essentially becomes a different movie because we went from it being about the construction of this bomb and him connecting with people there and sort of the complexities of what was going on with that. But then once the bomb happens and once it goes off, and and I think too, they, I think it was purpose. It was on purpose that they sort of minimized like, like, or at least making the, the explosions and the bomb itself. So grandiose and stuff like that. What I appreciated about that scene was that it, it concentrated more on Oppenheimer and what, and how he was reacting and what he was feeling. And I do think that that was more important than being like, look at this cool ass, big ass explosion bomb thing. I kind of like how it more focused on the human that had done this and like kind of the ramifications afterwards. So I actually liked some of the uh, decisions in those scenes with the bomb, even though a lot of this was leading up to that. I like how it wasn't ultimately uh, uh, about the visuals of that or making that look as cool as possible or being like, look at this badass explosion we did because, uh, because at the end of the day, this was used to kill a, quite a few Japanese people. So I kind of, I, I think that was a fine line to teeter. And I think that Nolan probably made the, the, the best choice with that. Um, I do agree with you, Sterling, that, I do think that maybe they should have shown some of the devastation. Now they showed Oppenheimer looking at it and it obviously was affecting him. And I think uh, Killian did a good job showing that seeing the aftermath of that was definitely affecting him, but maybe they could have shown some of those things to the audience. And maybe if you could have saw what he was seeing you could have then better understood some of the decisions he made after the fact and, and, and why he tried to, and why he was an advocate against uh, doing another bomb in that and why he went and spoke to the president and things of that nature. I think seeing that, I agree that maybe seeing that would have added some more weight uh, to, to, to that scene. Um, so I, I don't know if it makes Nolan a coward for not showing it, but I do think the movie could have been better served. I'm not going to call him a, a chicken for not showing it, but I think it, it, he, it, the movie probably would have been better served to show um, some of that devastation. So then we could really understand kind of the weight that it was having on Oppenheimer. 
But I will give the movie credit for at least showing that he did get to see some of that devastation. So I think it was still important to at least have it in there. Um, And yeah, we've already spoken about Robert Downey Jr., but man, dude, he was just fantastic. And I don't think he had a ton of screen time, but man, he just maximize every minute that he was on screen. And then that third act, I think one of the reasons why I enjoyed it so much was because he was in it a lot. So when the movie sort of shifts that tone and shifts those gears in the third act, and we're getting a lot of him and understanding kind of his connection to Oppenheimer, where the jealousy came from, where the vindictiveness came from and why he was doing what he was doing. I think because Robert Downey Jr. is in a lot of that, it definitely helped. And I think um, Emily Blunt was in a lot more of those scenes as well. And I think that that helped uh, towards uh, the end of the film with, with her being questioned and, um, and, and, and all of those things. So I feel like the, the, the third act of the movie sort of picked up in its tone and everything but I didn't feel like it was a bad juxtaposition. I thought that it actually helped the film. I thought it was good that I thought that was a good choice to sort of change the tone and go into sort of this sort of um, kind of like political entry courtroom hearing sort of kind of thing that it was doing at the end. I thought that that change did uh, help the movie. And I think it was all important to be in there because it was, I feel it was necessary to understand the aftermath of Oppenheimer's life. I think if it just ends with him creating the bomb and then some scene of him being like, man, I'm, I'm sad now that I did this. I just don't know if that would have put him to perspective, like what happened, some of the consequences and some of the things that happened to him Afterwards, I think that it all kind of needed to be there. So I think that those were necessary scenes to just kind of understand the totality of uh, his situation and the consequences behind some of the things that he did. And and so all in all, I just think, um, you know, like I said before, when it ended, Uh, I didn't feel like I saw something that was trying to convince me to like him or to respect him more or anything like I just didn't have any of those feelings afterwards. I was just like, if anything, I walked out going, damn, man, would not want to be him. (laughs) You know, could could not have been me because I would have just imploded under all of that, you know. Trying to do one of those things is hard enough. Trying to have one woman is hard enough. (laughs) I don't know about having four or five. Sorry, can't do it. Try to, you know, construct something and be responsible for kind of trying to, you know, save your country in a way and, and do it by constructing something that you think is going to help your country or prevent it from being attacked further. The, the, the response would have buckled under that, you know, um, some of the connections and friendships he had with people of the, the, the communist party, 
I mean, how could you even do that? Like, um, and even that affected some of his decisions with like who he reported and who he didn't report and how he reported some people late because of, you, you know, just different things like that. Um, so yeah, man, I, I just walked out going, man, I would not want to be this man because it's like on one end, he's got this legacy of inventing this thing that nobody invented. So he's like a, an, an inventor, but he's also responsible for helping America to, to assert, to take a certain position at that time in a, in a time of war. But he's also responsible for the deaths of so many people. And that is just a lot of shit, man. Like, <laughs> I just don't know uh, how uh, he lived or could put up with that mentally as long as he did. But it's all the product of a person who was unstable himself and who did struggle uh, mentally with his health. And I guess you could see how all of that played into his moral complexity as well. And all of it is moral, morally complex when you're talking about that time of war. So it all kind of matched up for me. And so in a way, it's kind of this just uh, amazing story of just this person who had to do impossible, who did the impossible, these impossible things and, you know, also had to deal with those consequences. I think one of the things though with me is I think they, they did go a little soft on him being anti nuclear weapon afterwards. Like they kind of brought it up a couple of lines, you know what I mean? But they didn't really show him mm. deeply going into that. And I think that that would have been an aspect I would have respected more if they had gone in. Because that is one thing about him I will give Oppenheimer some credit for is that he was staunchly anti-nuclear afterwards. Like to a big degree. It was more than him just going and talking to the president or him just, you know, doing a little line, you know, that pissed Strauss off at a congressional hearing type of thing. He was hardcore against it. Yeah. And went out of yeah. his way to go talk everywhere he could to be like, nah, this is a terrible thing. Don't fucking do it. Just stop now. You know, and they didn't really go that hard into that. And I think yeah. that that's, that's a very big missed opportunity. If you're going into these things, you delve into that. If you're wanting to show the complexity of a person and all these things, show that other side that makes it complex. You know, don't just gloss over it, you know, to the, the, the degree this film did. Um, Heather, what about you? I do think one thing they did well here, uh, which you kind of talked about a little bit, Justin, is they, the fact that they don't make him this, you know, perfect hero. You know, he's a very deeply flawed man, and they do a good job of showing that where you just see the humanity of him, where he's, I mean, 
it's almost like you get the tortured genius sort of aspect of him. You know what I mean? It almost kind of reminded me of like a beautiful mind and how he was just so tortured by his brilliance and things like that. And um, I even think that a lot of his whole like, hey, I want to be involved with this project and everything is it was more it almost felt at times like it was more to prove to himself that he was the smartest person in the room or that like, Hey, I can do this. I'm capable of this more than it was really considering all aspects of what it would mean to do this, you know? And then afterwards him realizing what he actually had done after he got past the point of, Hey, I know it's possible that we've done this, you know? Um, and I did enjoy that aspect of this too. And like even the scenes with, I also agree about Emily Blunt's scene when she's talking to the people and like, she just, she nailed that scene. Um, but I mean, even the, even the moment when she's talking to him after he finds out that um, Florence Pugh's character um, is dead, you know, and she's just kind of like, he's broken apart about it and all this stuff. And Emily Blunt comes to him and says, you know, something to the effect of, you know, you can't commit all of these sins and expect the whole world to feel sorry for you, you know? And I think that was a really great line because I don't think she was just talking about, you know, his affairs or whatever. I think it was just so deeply in the midst of everything else going on with this uh, project that he was working on and all of that. I just feel like it was a culmination of things building up that made her say that. But I think that that's just such a great way to kind of describe I think um, Oppenheimer's kind of character, you know, where it's like, yeah, you're a genius and yeah, you're a smart person and you've helped with all these things and you're super important historically, but you are, I just, it, it's almost like he let the work that he was doing be way more important than anything else in his life. And he didn't care about really anything else like even that moment when <laughs> he asked the guy like hey can you just take our kid for a while and like <laughs> you know and just kind of even yeah you know what I mean and like even you know with with his wife like you could just feel that strained relationship and you don't really feel a lot of times like it's you know deeply in love it's more of like a convenience thing of being together but they got to support each other still you know, you do get moments of that later, but it just felt like even when he's leaving and he's like, okay, all right. You know, it just felt like the only thing he really cared about was proving himself with this project that he was on. And I think they, they do a great job of uh, showing that in relation to the other people in his life too. And um, I appreciated that because yeah, like you said, like this man is not, you know, this, you know, superhero whatever perfect person and yeah like he's responsible for a lot of damage <laughs> um you know and then like i was seeing some article or review or something where somebody's like yeah he's the most important person or one of the most important people in history but he's also he was also very naive very naive with it and you see that as well where it's like oh i might be the smartest person in the room but I'm not actually thinking about the effects of what my brain is causing afterwards. So I don't know. I, I did think that part was showed really well and kind of like what you said too, about like his eyes and just sort of his, he was doing a lot of acting with his face for sure. 
and you see even like that moment when he's talking to that room of people and he's like, you know, we got him or whatever it was he was talking about. And then he's kind of having that internal crisis of seeing the dead people and imagining these things like you, you're hearing what he's saying, but you see on his face that he is completely just anxiety ridden about what's happened now. And he does do a good job of that. Absolutely. My, my only issue with that is I feel like immediately they proved that they, they did all the testing and then immediately he's like, oh, wait, you're taking this and you're going to make it something that I didn't think it was going to be like. They just so quickly he so quickly turns. And I think Sterling, you alluded to that earlier where his his change of heart happened just so immediately after he did all of that work. And I felt like that didn't give you time to kind of sit with it. You don't see the process of him like slowly realizing, wait a minute, this isn't what I thought it was. And I kind of wish I would have seen a little bit more of that in the story. But regardless of that, like I do, I, I don't know. I really enjoyed his back and forth um, dialogue he was having with the other scientists and the other people involved with this project. I thought it was really um, just kind of cool to see that because all of them think they're the smartest person in the room. <laughs> so watching kind of being a fly on the wall while they're having these conversations is just really interesting because everybody thinks they're right. Everybody thinks they have the right answer and all of this and wants to prove their value. And they're just so cerebral with it that it's, it's just interesting to see those conversations. Um, so yeah, I, I do, I do also agree completely about the Florence Pugh character Sterling. Like I think it did feel a little bit like they just had that because they wanted to have Florence Pugh, nude in a scene with him and like I don't know it just it, almost every aspect of romance in this movie I almost feel wasn't necessary um I feel like Emily Blunt's character was necessary I feel like she had a lot of important parts in the movie but just any yeah romantic element they add to this it just feels a little bit out of place with just the heaviness of the rest of this movie and the tone of the rest of the movie and maybe that's also part of why the Florence Pugh relationship wasn't like something that stood out. It was definitely one of the weaker parts of the movie for sure. Um, because yeah, again, that whole scene when she's like in the middle of them just having sex and she's like, wait a minute, let me find this book, read this to me. Like it was just very off putting and weird and jarring. Cause you're like, what, <laughs> where did this come from? This is super weird, you know? And yes, also the scene when, he's recounting what's going on in the room full of people. And Emily Blunt is seeing them, you know, having sex in front of her on the chair. It was very, um, I get what he was trying to do, I guess, artistically, but it just didn't work for me either. I was like, this isn't, it just felt unnecessary. It just, everything with the sex in general felt unnecessary. But, um, and, and it's a shame because I mean, it's Florence Pugh, like, that is a very talented woman. And I just feel like they could have utilized her in a little bit of a better way. If he's sort of like, they kind of played it like she was supposed to be this very, like kind of like a confidant, like somebody that he talked to about stuff, you know, like it felt like that's kind of who she was to him on some level. And they could have just played more into that, I think. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just wasn't a big fan of her, 
specific role in this movie. Just I don't really think they did the that character well or developed her very well in this movie. And maybe that was on purpose. Maybe maybe it's playing into the whole theme of how much of a womanizer he was. And so from his perspective, you're only seeing like the sex is the only thing you're seeing because that's all that she was to him. Maybe. I don't know. But it just didn't really add up to me to be to amount to really anything. So but I also do think, yeah, Robert Downey Jr. I mean, come on, that man just acted circles around everybody almost like which is crazy to say because it's a stacked cast of people but he was definitely the standout performance for sure in this movie for me um i also think matt damon was great i think matt damon did a great job i think he was a great you know uh he was the general i think right um or, yeah, I forgot to talk about him but yeah he was tight in this yeah matt was, damon was tight when he got when he got there Whenever he started interacting with Oppenheimer, I think it picked up when Matt Damon yeah. was, yeah. was when there. He got there. When he was on screen, their interactions were some of my favorite in the movie. I can't believe I skipped over him, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, Didn't mean to cut it on your time, tough. but he was great. It's tough in this movie because there is 97 like big name cast members. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's easy to miss because and there's also just so much to talk about with a three hour movie, you know. So, yeah, but it, I just feel like um, him, Robert Downey Jr. and Matt Damon were probably the biggest supporting characters in the movie, aside from Emily Blunt. Like they had the more more of the interactions with um, Oppenheimer and and yeah, the the dynamic between Oppenheimer and um, I'm forgetting character but matt damon was really good like it, it, you're right it did pick up you felt like you're, you're feeling a little bit more of the flow starting to happen when they kind of are interacting with each other i agree with that for sure um yeah there's so many people in this movie that i'm like i mean i mean you got i mean actually josh hartnett played a way bigger character in this movie than i thought he was gonna play but i was here for it because i mean it's, you know, he hasn't been around for a while and he got a decently bigger role now. So what are you talking about? <laughs> he was in Moon Knight. Oh, whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and then like um, the the Safty brother, I'm forgetting what his name is. Um, the one that played the. Uh, the guy that was trying to leave and then Oppenheimer convinced him to stay because he told him he'd do like one hour of, you know, uh, meeting with him a week or something. That guy, um, he was a good character too. I I, I just, I liked cut, that he was kind of like an opposition. The one that Emily Blunt like didn't want to shake his hand <laughs> because he like said all these oh, bad yeah, things yeah. and then, you know, um. But yeah, I, I thought he was a good character. Like, I liked what they did with him. He had a lot more of these dynamic aspects to him than some of the other characters did. Um, Jack Quaid was completely unnecessary in this movie. Jack Quaid's character could have been literally anybody. And that's unfortunate because I like Jack Quaid. But he just, he had maybe two lines in the whole movie. And, you know, it's just funny because you're like, man, use these people. If they are on your your bill you use them like they could have like if there would have been a little bit more of that maybe this movie would have been like felt a little bit more like a good flow in the story if you had 
more of these other people interacting or having dialogue in the film. Um, even the guy, um, the guy that was in the Han Solo movie, that was the, like the aide to Robert Downey Jr.'s character. I liked him a lot too. The one at the end that was like, you know, you think that they were talking about you. What if they had, they didn't even think about you. Like what if they were talking about something completely different? That aide that was kind of changing his tone with Robert Downey Jr.'s character. I liked him a lot too. He was great. And Albert Einstein. I loved his scenes. I loved everything he did in this movie. He wasn't in it a lot, but I just like the way that they did his interactions with Oppenheimer and even the, the final scene when you hear what they were talking about and all of that, that was well done. I liked everything they did with Oppenheimer and Einstein together. I thought it was great. Um, but yeah, it, it was just more of like, Oh, and um, what's his name? David Krumholtz, who played one of the other scientists, like that guy's great. <laughs> he was, he was really great in this movie. And it, it's just, it's so hard to kind of say like, oh yeah, a lot of these people were so great in the movie because they had one or two lines or they were in it for one or two minutes, you know? Um, so yeah, it, I wish that he, that they would have utilized that better in this film, but um, yeah, the, the characterization of Oppenheimer by Killian Murphy, thinking about it more and hearing more about like how he actually was in his demeanor. I'm on board for it. Killian Murphy did his thing with it and I did appreciate that. But yeah, I think my favorite aspect was just his tortured genius mentality. Um, and yeah, I just, uh, I think, I don't know. I think, yeah, narratively, it definitely could have been a little tighter <laughs> to kind of, I, I feel like it just, it doesn't hit the emotional notes that I, I thought it was going to hit. Um, and I think that's really what the miss is with this movie for me. It didn't, there was nothing in it that gave me this like deep, powerful, emotional connection to the movie. It was interesting to see the story of it because I also didn't know a lot about Oppenheimer going into this, but I, it just, it, it, they, pitched this as a movie that was going to be just a devastatingly emotional movie and I didn't get any sort of emotional notes in that way with it so I think that's where it fell flat for me but again talking through some of these things I do appreciate some of it more than I realized I did but it's still just narratively I think could have done something to kind of emotionally connect me more to the story any more Thoddenheimers? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, what, one thing I wanted to say about Florence Pugh's character, because y'all said a lot about her, and I forgot to talk about her. I feel that, and, and I get what you're saying about the, maybe they just wanted her to be naked in here, but I got the impression that she had a much more intimate, like closer connection in a way with Oppenheimer that the wife didn't have. It, it felt very on purpose that like there were scenes where they were just naked sitting and talking together and they seemed 
a little more, they seemed, he seemed a lot more intimate with her than Emily Blunt. You know what I mean? Than, than the wife. And I feel like there was an importance to show that contrast. And I think that that's maybe the reason why. And when you hear about that woman and how just mentally she was, because she had a lot of the same kind of mental health hangups and uh, that he did. So I don't know if this is documented or anything, but I'm just kind of talking about the movie. But the mo- it seemed like the movie was making it a point to show you that they connected in a way that he didn't connect with any of those women. I'm not saying, oh, he loved her or, or, or necessarily, or um, he cared for her more. Or I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe he did. Maybe he wrote something and said he did. Uh, who knows? But it definitely felt like in the movie, he had a connection with her that was a lot different from what he had with the wife. And I think that was the reason for that contrast in what they showed with Florence's uh, character all the time. So I just wanted to say that, just sort of kind of balance that with what you guys had said about her. I think I would have narratively bought that more, though, if she was on the screen more than like four minutes in the whole movie. <laughs> like, she's just in it so little, comparatively speaking, that I find that... I, I, I get what you're saying, and that is a fair assessment of it. I just think if you're... It felt like that first love, you know what I'm saying? That first, <laughs> like, real love where they connected and she was smart, too. Because she was very smart, too. You know, they were both kind of brainiacs. You know, it was that first, like... The first woman he probably felt was on his level intellectually. Exactly. Exactly. She challenged him in ways. And we saw that, you know, he would say something and she'd argue back or she'd say, well, why don't you look at it this way? It it seemed like she challenged him and just had a connection with him that the other women didn't have. So, but but I get what you're saying. On to Barbie. Yes. All right. And now we are going to talk about Barbie. Just like before, we will go spoiler-free recommendations and scores and then into a more spoiler-centric section. Time code's still in the description. I put those in for both movies, not just the one. And we will now start with uh, spoiler-free. I'll start it. Well, since we've got all of this time now. Um, I did. I really enjoyed Barbie. I thought it was a really fun movie. I thought... It's weird that both of these movies this weekend had just the largest possible casts that like a movie could possibly have. Just gigantic fucking casts of just several <laughs> name people in all of these roles. It's fucking crazy, honestly. Yeah, whoever wasn't in Oppenheimer was in Barbie, basically. Pretty much. <laughs> they have every actor that's existed in the last 10 years in both these movies combined. Um, but I thought it was really good. I thought it was really funny. I thought it was really smart. It took way more shots at Mattel 
than I thought that Mattel would allow. They they did not pull that many punches in this, and I think that that's one of the things I enjoyed about it. Um, but I really do think it was just smartly written and smartly directed, smartly acted, smartly cast. And overall, I just really ended up enjoying most of this movie. I think it does have some beats that were a little out of place. I think the the very, like the end segment gets a little uneven. And this is about a very specific scene, but it's not really a spoiler. I did not think that that scene from the, the first teaser with all the little girls like beating their dolls because Barbie came. I didn't think that that would actually be in the movie. I thought that that was something for the teaser. And it was a little off-putting when the movie started with that because I was like, we've seen this whole segment, just all of it. And so it was a little weird that that was also the intro to the movie. But the movie does rebound very quickly from that. Because right after that, it goes straight into like Barbie at the dream house and all those things. And I really, I'm not going to lie. I really kind of thought it was really funny that like all the things that they had were essentially gigantic versions of Barbie shit. You know, it's a milk carton. Nothing comes out of it, but they drink it like it's milk. Like they do the whole. And there's nothing there. Yeah. She gets in the shower and there's no water. And it really is just a live action version of the dream house and all of those things. And I thought that that was just an incredibly smart way of doing it. Just leaning into the things that are very specific to Barbie over all of these times. Uh, Even right down to her getting out of her dream house was like a little kid picking her up and just going straight to the car. You know, we all know as living beings that that's not how it works, but I really just kind of dug that that's just, they committed wholly to doing that in those scenes. I thought that that was, if you're going to do it, leaning into some of the absurdity that is kids playing with toys adds an element of re- like of a weird realism to your movie. Like as weird as it, it, it that it's it's toys and it's not real, they added elements of realism to it just by having them be like toys that are being played with. And I just thought that that was a really great way and smart way of doing this. Um when it goes to the real world, I like that there's some dichotomies in there with it. But I like this that this movie kind of subverts some of the expectations of how it's going to be. Like the ultimate antagonist of this movie is not who I thought it was going to be. I won't say who it is yet, but it wasn't who I thought it was going to be. And that was a really nice, pleasant surprise. And I think the way they handled it was incredibly well. And you know, most of the jokes landed in this more so than I thought that they would. I thought some of them would be a little bit too Barbie specific or something like that, but no, like they were just in general, good jokes for the most part. 
And as weird as it is that this movie has so many people in it, they did the smart thing and also just didn't have, have a billion extra cameos in it also. Cause that's another thing a movie like this might do is that, yeah, it has a billion people in it, but then it's also like, and here's some other people too. And it, it had a couple of those, but I think it, it kind of smartly stayed away from some of that. And with all that, it weirdly became watching this and it's been stuck in my head, a podcast I listen to all the time, the Weekly Planet podcast. They talked about this and they said something and it has been stuck in my head ever since they said it. So I'm going to do this for all of you people too. It's going to be stuck in your heads. This is like a newer version of fucking Anchorman in a weird way. It kind of works weirdly with how they do the, they structure the humor and they tell the story and then just there's a, there's a sequence in this that is timed almost exactly like they did it in Anchorman and it's been stuck in my head and I can't think of anything else now that I think about it. And I'll, it'll, it'll, I think it'll make a little bit more sense in spoilers, but yeah, it's been stuck in my head. So I wanted to be stuck in everyone else's head too. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Heather, what I about never you? thought of that. Um, yeah, I think this movie was super fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, I mean, it did have a lot of like the campy cheesiness to it, but I think it worked for what this movie was supposed to be. Um, but it also, I mean, it was an unexpectedly emotional movie. It struck a very emotional chord with me a little bit in some aspects of it because I mean, they just kind of get a little bit deeper than I expected they would. And I loved it. I mean, there's a really great scene towards the end of it that is just really, it kind of is what makes this movie as top tier as it is for me right now. Um, Yeah, I think that the, I loved just the look of Barbie land. I loved all of the bright colors and the just not realistically beautiful Barbie land (laughs) and like I I loved um you know I I just I think that uh everyone nailed it as a Barbie I mean Margot Robbie she absolutely nailed it I mean we kind of knew that that would happen um Issa Rae was just like a dark horse you know Barbie in this for me I loved her she was so great Ryan Gosling absolutely nailed it uh Samu also like just everybody they cast for these roles really really did their thing with it and it was just so well done because while they do have like the silly like very kind of campy jokes that they do at certain points it's so counteracted with like very um realistically good emotional moments from some of these dolls (laughs) that you get And I really loved that. I thought that was so great. Um, Yeah, I mean, Barbie's dream house was perfect. It was perfect, like how they how they did it and everything. Um, It's just such a also very relevant movie, I think, right now. And I love that it was. And I love that they sort of in some ways turn what Barbie's about a little bit on its head and make it something actually even better (laughs) than what it initially was supposed to be. And I think that's really cool. Um, yeah, I think the <laughs> the Kens 
were hilarious. Almost every scene that the kids were in, where I was just like, these these guys, they're so funny. Um, yeah, every everyone was just really solid. Um, and I also loved learning about like the different types of Barbies that there were that I just didn't know were Barbies, <laughs> like the different you know themed Barbies that they had. Um, but it was also cool too. Like the costumes were great because I mean, especially particularly there's one where they're in like this very neon bright rollerblading getup that is in the trailers too. I think, um, I had that Barbie. I had that outfit. I had the, I had the rollerblades. I had the elbow pads. I had that. And it was just so like cool to see it like, you know, in this movie and be like, yeah, I remember that Barbie for sure. So yeah, I thought it was really fun. It was funny. It was heartwarming. Um, it was really a good time in theaters for sure. Justin, what about you? Yeah. I also enjoyed the movie too. And, um, man, it's like movies like this are just going to make me look like a, a, a wise sage right now, because way back in the nostalgia episode we did, I said that, when nostalgia is used correctly, when it's used right, you can lure people into the door with something that they recognize. But once they arrive, you can then teach lessons. You can introduce them to some things. You can kind of say something very innovative and meaningful with the use of nostalgia. And that is this movie in a nutshell. Like all of the nostalgic stuff that I even remember about Barbie. And it's not like I brought Barbie dolls or anything. You know, I was the G.I. Joe Ninja Turtles, which is funny because there was a, a little opening thing where the ninja, t- where like it, it, it started with Barbies up top and then down in the sewer, the Ninja Turtles were under there and they were like, man, what must it be like to be them up there? And how oh, do they, yeah. how can they afford all that stuff? And that was so funny, but like I'm sitting here like looking at that and I'm going, that is what it is. You know, Barbie was the was the girls ninja turtles that's what barbie was to them you know ninja turtle what ninja turtles was to me is what barbie was to them and so at that time i wasn't like into barbie or anything but i remember all the commercials i remember like i, I mean you could i mean bar there were barb i felt like there were barbie commercials on all the time so I knew some of the toys. I knew some of the, oh, look, now she's uh, got, you know, now Barbie's going to space or Barbie is a doctor and she's going to, you know, and Ken's in trouble, you know, or whatever. You know, you I remember some of that stuff and the babysitter. What was her name? Skipper or whatever. I remember some of that stuff. So, like, it was like so nostalgic just seeing a lot of that stuff come to life. And and like you said, the juxta, like you guys were saying, the juxtaposition of kind of setting up Barbie land, like these playhouses that, that you recognize. And some of them were structured exactly like 
those playhouses that people used to buy. I mean, they looked exactly like them. Um, Even just some of the facial sometimes that Margot Robbie was making and the smile, it looked, she looked just, there were parts where she was just standing still smiling and she looked just like a Barbie doll. Sliding down the the slide with her, with her Barbie arms. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How she was just like in that exact Barbie pose from those commercials. So all of that, so when the movie first starts, it's just boom. It's just a nostalgia overload. And even I'm remembering like all of these little things and going, man, that's in there. That's in there. They they got her. Uh, who couldn't, who didn't know about that car? So it was cool to see that car. That's like an iconic Barbie vehicle. So it was just nostalgia overload. But what I loved about it is that all of that is dressing for what is this bigger, larger, more important, empowering message about like, and it's funny because we, I was just talking at Oppenheimer about the conflicting nature of that man, but Barbie is very much a conflicting figure in our society as far as like you know there are people that feel and I love how this movie like captured both sides of that the empowering part of her but then also the problematic part of her and all of it is in here you know all of it is in here it gets mentioned it gets addressed or and it's used to sort of tell this this what I think is just a great, very relevant, very empowering message in the film. And on top of that, like you guys said, it's colorful. It's funny. It moves very swimmingly as far as its pace. Um, And all of the other people involved in this, not just Margot Robbie and not just Ryan Gosling, though they were wonderful in this and they are perfect in this, but all the rest of the cast, um, though there were some where, you know, I wish they had had a little more to do, but what they did was fine. Um, I, I think the movie is is very well done. Uh, it it walked a fine line at the end at, at, uh, between the the perfect amount of message and maybe being a little preachy. I, I mean, I, I got the it, it it very it walked a very fine line towards the end there. But I think overall, we didn't fall off the line. We didn't go too much into that. We did just enough because I felt like the movie felt like it really wanted to get a message across. And I believe that it did that. And speaking of Anchorman, Will Ferrell was funny in this. And I mean, I I didn't think I would enjoy him as much as I did. But, you know, he was perfect for what this Mattel CEO boss needed to be. So all in all, yeah, it's a funny movie. It's a fun movie. It's, it's a nostalgic movie. And, but, but also it was a movie that had something to say. And I think that's what makes this so good is what lied beneath the nostalgic colorful surface. Recommendations and scores? Yep. Yep. Recommendations and scores. 
These go so much quicker when we tend to just agree on everything. <laughs> We're just like flying by on this one now. Uh, I recommend it. It was fun. It's a good movie. Um, if you hear anybody on the internet saying it's anti-man, tell them to shut up because they didn't watch the movie. It's not. It's not anti-man in the, in the slightest. It's not even close to that. Uh, in fact, it has a, a very great uh, a message for men in this movie when it comes to just, you know, like specifically tailored for men, like specifically like, you know, to sh- it's okay to show your emotions and not know where you're going to go and, and not knowing who you are. Those are acts. Those are aspects of being a human. Like those aren't traits that just like that just women have or anything like that. Th- those, those are traits of being a human and it's okay to feel those things. It's okay to express those things. Like it's, it's great in that way. Like it's, it's not anti, you know, men in the slightest. Uh, it's, you know, it's this movie, I think more so than ever shows what it is, what, what feminism is supposed to represent more than sometimes you get from just loud people on the internet. You know, this movie, when it comes down to it is truly about inclusion and equality in so many ways. And it, it, it tackles those things in multiple ways. And that is the ultimate goal of feminism is not to be, you know, women are on top or like men are subjugated or men are put down. Like, no, it is a quality for all, you know, for, for people across multiple spectrums, you know, and I, and I love how this movie tackles it. I love how this movie has, a, a, a trans actor playing Barbie or, you know, and, and, and with that, it is also kind of a, you know, a big fuck you to all those turfs out there that are, you know, like, you know, they're not real women and all those things. Like it's, this movie just says fuck all that. And it, it, it does so without, like Justin said, it, 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 it does sometimes walk a fine line, but it's never preachy. It is just kind of, doing its thing and doing its thing happens to be telling a great message while it's doing it. Uh, also, I'm an actor in the, the sense of all people like, you know, not separating actors and actresses. I wasn't misgendering somebody. Uh, but no, I, I do. I recommend it. It is bright. It is colorful. It is funny. I think I just literally said what Justin said to open his uh, spoiler free segment. And it's, it's, it's incredibly refreshing in that way. Like it's, you, you really don't see movies lean so hard into this, like those color palettes and things like that. And it's, it adds a, a level of authenticity to it because that shit looked like fucking dream houses. They looked like fucking Barbies, you know, like that's the craziest thing about those rollerblades is a, how the fuck did you even find rollerblades in 2023? Like, and then also yeah. make them look like Barbie rollerblades. It was crazy. They um, really did. Yeah. And it's just, and, and, and like both of you said, like, yeah, there are scenes where Margot Robbie legitimately somehow is physically a Barbie. Like the, the, the doll that has gotten flack because it is 100% not to human proportions in the slightest. Yet somehow she looked 
just like a fucking Barbie doll. It was crazy. But yeah, I recommend it. Um, I'm going to give this 83. Michael Sarah as Alan was a weirdly sneaky good casting choice. Out of 100. What did I say, 83? I literally forgot what I just said. Uh, Chastin, what about you? Yeah, it's going to be a, a recommend, and I mean, shoot, when you look at the box office numbers of this movie, it feels like everybody already saw it. I mean, it, right. it did it did great at the box office, and one thing I want to say about that is that um, for all this talk about what's a blockbuster and what's not, when I went to the theater, this felt like an event. Like, there were so many women dressed up in pink and went to go see this movie with Barbie shirts and their kids were dressed up and, you know, people had, I mean, it was an event like all weekend at the theater. And like, I had to go twice because I had to, cause you know, I had to do my Barbenheimer. So, but like, I couldn't help but notice just the sheer number of people that wore pink to go see this. And it felt like an event. It wasn't just like another movie that came out in the summer. It felt like one that people were looking forward to and people uh, really were invested to go see. So I think that that's important to point out is that just how much of an event it felt like. And that's sort of kind of the magic of the movie theaters that people don't often talk about is when you get moments like that, when you're seeing people dressed up or when, or when it's almost like a festival to just come see this film, you know, because it has been around for so, because Barbie's been around for so many generations. And that, like I said, that is that that's the that's the girls ninja turtles that it's that it's like that to them so like seeing them like fully representing coming out and watching the movie was also a very refreshing part of just the theater experience it made it made just going to see it more fun because you felt like you were in a room full of people that they couldn't wait to see their girl on screen. So that was very interesting too. Uh, but, but yeah, um, just going to give it a recommend. Um, it's going to be, we'll, we'll go, we'll go 90, uh, <laughs> Ken's, uh, finding out about the patriarchy and the real world out of a hundred. Heather, what about you? Yeah, definitely a recommend for me. Um, I love how self-aware the movie is in a lot of ways because it adds to the humor of the movie. Um, I think that everybody's performance was dead on. They nailed it completely. Um, yeah, just the the message that this movie has for not only women, but also, yeah, kind of like what you said, Sterling, all all people, just kind of like this universal message about humanity in general is really great. Um, 
yeah, it's it's beautiful. It's fun. Honestly, I think my biggest my biggest complaint I would have with the movie is I kind of wish I hadn't seen the trailer because some of the like humorous moments that they put in the trailer, I wish I didn't know were in the movie because they would have been they would have been funnier to me if I didn't know that they were coming. But that's really the only <laughs> the only real complaint I can say about this movie. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was, it's so much fun. And it, it's really just like it, this movie is just not nothing about it was fully what I expected this movie to be um, in a few different ways. And, and I loved that about it because it just it surprised me with some of the things that they did with this movie. So, yeah, I, I think it was great. I think it's fun. I think it's um, it's it was a very needed movie, I think. And I also love that it was a huge event. I, I love that they that everyone was so excited about it. And yeah, like there was a sea of pink at the theater I was at. Absolutely. <laughs> there really was. Although I'm kind of bummed because they uh, at the theater that I go to, they have like a like a little bar there. And sometimes they have themed drinks like alcoholic beverages. And I was kind of hoping they had a Barbie one and they didn't. And that's kind of a bummer. But otherwise, yeah, it was it was fun to just kind of see the excitement that everybody had going into it and everything. Um, yeah, definitely recommend it. Um, I'm going to give this also 90. Um, 90. <laughs> you are Knuff hoodies out of 100. <laughs> Um, that brings our Cinescore for this movie to an 88. Uh, spoilers? Yep. Yep. Spoilers! I think the two best jokes in this movie was, or were, when the movie kind of pauses for a second, Helen Mirren jumps on there and she's like, uh, this or this point kind of falls a little flat when you cast Margot Robbie as Barbie. Yeah, that was funny. Like, that was a yeah, really, was really good joke to me. And then the second was when Ken was talking about the patriarchy. And he was like, when I found out the patriarchy wasn't about horses, I kind of wanted to just stop. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a really funny joke to me because I just... <laughs> I kind of lost interest, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why he would think the patriarchy is about horses. I don't know what about anything with the patriarchy screams horses, but I love that his whole being was, this is about horses. And then when it wasn't, he was like, you mean I have all the power and all the privilege and all that, but, but no horses, man, fuck this thing. I really kind of thought that was super fucking funny. Um, (laughs) No, the, I think the thing that really made me think Anchorman with this movie, or once they said Anchorman, it kind of made me think it, and I can't shake it, is how the movie randomly has a gigantic fight scene in it. Just out of nowhere at the end of this, or like yeah. at the beginning of the third act of this movie, just like an Anchorman, it's just out of nowhere, gigantic fucking fight sequence. And it shouldn't work at all. Yeah. But it weirdly does. And then it transitions into a song and dance number. <laughs> yep. It was also super yep. good. Like, 
both of those were really good. I, I really enjoyed seeing all that with it. I really also enjoyed the kids just constantly singing that song. It, isn't that like a Matchbox 20 song or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah, the, I want to push you around. And just like the fa- when they're all sitting there around that campfire. Yeah. Just all singing that song. And like For what they said, what, three hours or something? Yes. <laughs> it was just, I was like, it's so weird that that's the song they chose, but then it also really kind of fits, you know. Um, I really liked the John Cena cameo of him just randomly being a merman just out of nowhere. And then when he's singing the song, it's his gigantic muscular ass body with a tiny ass ukulele. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Yeah. Yep. I liked Rhea, Rita Perlman in this. I liked her taking jabs at Mattel and taking jabs at the the person that created Barbie by, you know, having tax evasion issues and all that shit. I thought that that was something out of nowhere that I really enjoyed. Um, oh, that scene when they're like, well, what kind of Barbie do you want to be now? And she's like, well, just about ordinary Barbie. And the Wolf Pharaoh care is like, that will never sell. We can't. And then that guy behind him is like, Oh, that's going to make us a ton of money. And then he's just like, that is the greatest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. I really love that. Cause he just played like, that's, that's like a studio exec. You know what I mean? Like that's that type of guy that's like, yeah, he's passionate about these things. Like to a degree of I'm passionate about what will make me money. Right. You know? I like that he, him and weird Barbie had this weird understanding of Barbie lore to the degree of, they're the two that knew how to transverse universes was the CEO of Mattel <laughs> yeah. and weird Barbie. Uh, like it's things like that. Like that's that on paper, that is the dumbest thing you'll ever write down. If you wrote that down, the two people that know how to transverse between Barbie land and the real world is weird Barbie and the CEO of Mattel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That shouldn't work. Yeah, on paper, that's a dumb idea. You write that down and then you go, ew, and you burn that piece of paper because you don't want that that sentence to exist anymore. Ooh, but in the film, it worked. It, it It's just one of those things where they, they take you on this ride and it's this weird sincerity in the movie. Like the fact that they just kind of dove into the gimmick of oh no these are actual barbies and because they are the avatars of their barbie real world barbie counterparts you know they think that you know oh yeah women are just all of these things and you know or whenever it starts going crazy then like patriarchy can becomes a weirdly popular toy because that's what's happening in Barbie world. Um, another underrated joke when that whole thing of like, Oh, once they figure out how to build a wall horizontally, they'll finish this wall. And it's just them stacking bricks vertically on top of each other. God, that was a dumb joke, but it, it was fucking funny. Yeah. And then they go into that Scott Pilgrim S fight sequence with Alan. Like, Oh man, this movie just, it's one of those things that's like, 
every single thing on paper just sounds like a bad idea. Cause it's, but when you, when you put it to the visuals and you have it, you know, and you add that layer of sincerity to it, this movie just ends up fucking working. Like all of those moments hit all of that stuff's really great. And I think having the diversity and varied, you know, wildly varied cast just really kind of added even another layer to this film. Because nothing about, at least, especially at least in Barbie world, you know, it is a slightly utopian existence. So no, there is no race issues. There's no orientation issues. There's none of that exists in that world. And I like the fact that this movie with that just shows that you can have a, div- a, di- a diverse cast and that just be because, you know, it's something as simple as that's just what you want. You just want variety. You want different people. You want different body types. You want different, you know, ethnicities, all of these things. Just because it adds to your movie. And it just makes it, a, you know, and you know, just that much more enjoyable because this movie is so diverse that like it, there, it's almost like there's something in this for everyone, you know, that like there, you, you, there's some sort of representation in there to where it, you can, you know, relate to it and you can see yourself in it and you can connect to something in it to just make it this universal experience of a movie. Um, like I said, the, the, the last couple of scenes get a little wonky with how there's all this stuff going on and it just kind of goes to, oh, close your eyes and just think about this. And, it, and, the, and the movie does it. The movie kind of slightly pauses there and stuff like that. And I think with how well this movie was paced... I think it was a little jarring to go completely pause and things like that. I mean, there, there's something to be said about the movie inherently just going, hey, reflect on everything you've just seen. But it did feel slightly out of place in that at that time. And like I said, the, the intro completely threw me off because, like I said, it's 100% the teaser. Because I really thought that the, the, the teaser for this movie was something that was just a teaser because, you know, they just filmed a couple of things and, you know, filmed the, the girls being some stuff up and, you know, just ask Helen Mirren to read a couple of lines. It would add five minutes to her day of recording, you know, and be no big deal. But nope, that is 100% the intro to this movie. And it just kind of, I don't know how I, I, I don't, I didn't really like that. I kind of, it, it felt a little out of place with where they ended up going. Um, but still, overall, I mean, with all that, it's still, it's very fun. It's very fresh. I'm I'm slightly upset with how well this movie's doing just for the sheer fact that, oh, man, this movie came out and it trounced Mission Impossible 7. 
we literally just got done saying that that that's a blockbuster. That's what these blockbusters are. Ooh, it's going to limp now. Barbie's going to be, or Mission Impossible 7 is going to be limping for the rest of the time it's in the theaters because of this movie. You know, and which just kind of sucks because I like this movie, but I still want my, my MI7 to do good too. I want both to do good. I will say this though. This movie's already a profit. It's opening weekend. This movie's already in the black. Like it's already doubled. It's more than doubled its budget. So it's weird to say like we've had a lot of week one flops and all this other stuff. It's been a while since we've had a week one. Oh, it is a profitable movie right now. But hey, don't fuck with Barbie. I mean, Barbie came in and kicked everybody's ass. So, and it wasn't even close. Was not close. Oppenheimer was the closest and it still almost doubled what Oppenheimer did. So, hey, maybe Mattel might knock it out the park with that Uno movie. I don't know. What do I know now? Uh, Heather, what about you? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the the biggest thing that was, I guess, surprising character-wise is I didn't really know what they were going to do with the Kens in this movie, like especially Ryan Gosling's Ken. I didn't really know what to expect from that. Um, and so kind of his his arc, his character arc that he has in this and sort of like a identity crisis that he's going through in a different way. But at the same time as Barbie was, it was interesting and I think it was clever to do what they did with it. And it's almost like they are kind of learning a similar lesson in very different ways. Um, But I, I, I like how Margot Robbie played this in a way naive because she's in Barbie land. And so when she goes to the real world, she's just completely out of a fish out of water, basically. And like, just not aware of it at all mixed with just those like very real moments of she's a very, you know, kind person and she's very empathetic and she can feel, you know, the things around her and things like that. I like the way that she played both of those parts so perfectly. Um, And then also in the same way, Ryan Gosling with his just insanely ridiculous, silly things he did. But then that moment when he's just kind of emotional about like, you know, nobody respects me and all this stuff. Like, he was so good in that moment too. Like it it just, the way that they both, they do both of them so well is great. Um, I think that um, I I also like the fact that because it's Barbie, she's just assuming that the one playing with her is a a little girl, like a child. (laughs) And I like that. It wasn't that that was, it was the complete opposite. It was the parent and not the child. And I just thought that was a, an interesting twist as well with it. And yeah, it just, it just, everything you're expecting is going to happen. It's, it's really not a very predictable movie. It is, but it isn't at the same time. Like the very more nuanced things are very not predictable, but the overall outcome is a little bit. So I think that's kind of what makes it a good movie though, because 
you know how this is going to end, but like this journey of things that they do in between, you're just along for the ride because you're like, I don't know what they're going to do with this. Like this is, it's, it's just, you know, doing a lot of things I didn't expect it to do. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, (laughs) I also really liked weird Barbie. I think weird Barbie was a great character and I like, how they how they used her she was kind of like the kind of like the yoda of barbies or something where she just like had the wisdom of the real world and knew knew what to expect and you know you gotta you gotta figure it out and learn it and fix it and i thought she was so funny i i loved weird barbie she was great and i had a weird barbie that's definitely a real thing there's always that barbie that you experiment like the haircuts on and like the weird makeup you put on like that that's a real thing i had one of those so yeah um but yeah, it it just was a very um <laughs> it it is one of those I think you said it best Sterling like on paper it sounds like a a mess of a movie. It sounds like a crazy idea for a movie. But when you see it all put together, you're just like this just works. It just really does. Um another thing that I really loved is how <laughs> just when when Barbie gets to the real world and it's not, yeah, it, it's even by the world's standards, she's still a, a perfect person, but it's not till she gets to the real world that she's like very aware of her surroundings. Like the moment when they are rollerblading and she says something like, I'm feeling very conscious, but conscious of myself right now. And like, just how it's just cool that like, they show how nobody nobody has like a self-conscious idea of themselves until other people tell them that they should. It wasn't until she saw and heard what the people around her were saying when they saw her that she felt that way. She had no concept of what self-consciousness was until that moment. And I loved that because it's like, that's so true. Like we're we're kind of ingrained to always have like this idea of, you know, being very self-aware and like having a certain type of self-esteem. And it's like, I I just love that she was like, I don't, I I just, I've always been this perfect thing and in this perfect land with everybody else who's also perfect. So there wasn't any sort of competition. There wasn't any sort of you're better than me and all of that. And it wasn't until she gets to the real world and sees like all these things that she gets very self-conscious and her self-esteem goes down and she has this, you know, breakdown and identity crisis of who she is. And I just think that was a really important moment to put because it makes you think about like, you're right. (laughs) If it wasn't for other people telling me I need to be self-conscious about something, I wouldn't be, you know, and I I really liked that a lot. Um, And I also just like that um, she, (laughs) um, in in the moment when the the best part of the movie for me is America Ferreira killing it with her monologue she does at the end there about all of the standards that women have to meet and all of these just like expectations that they have to meet to just be liked and to just, you know, meet the standard of what somebody else thinks that a woman should be. It was the greatest like dialogue about that topic that I think I've ever seen in a movie. And it's about Barbie. (laughs) Like, I loved that. I think that's so great. 
And that moment too, like right before she's talking about that, when she's talking to Barbie and Barbie's just like, I don't, um, I'm not good enough for anything. And you're just kind of like, that's a real feeling. And like, I just didn't expect that she was going to go there with her midlife crisis or her whatever breakdown that she had. And that was just, I think that entire scene was just the most relatable thing to almost any girl (laughs) of like, you know, I'm not as good as this and I'm not as good as that. Maybe even not even just girls, but you know, just in general of, I, I'm not this and I'm not that. I'm just I'm just not good at anything. I'm very standard. I'm very run of the mill. And, you know, it, it just was a really touching moment, that whole scene, and I loved it. Um and and I do love that in Barbie's world, like it's just so normal that the 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 female Barbies are the ones that do all of the jobs. So when she gets to the real world and she's like so where's the the woman in charge of this and like whatever and it's nobody like there's no women in charge of anything in the real world and I thought that was really well done um and then in turn Ken being like oh people respect men here people talk to me here like I you know I'm appreciated here in this world and like seeing but just how very toxic the men around him are and bringing that into Barbie land so immediately because he wanted to feel important for once or whatever it was. Like I just, uh, it was just so done, done so well. And like, I don't know. I, um, I also agree about the random musical number that happened in the middle of it because I'm like, what is this? (laughs) But at the same time, I'm like, it's so delightful and I really enjoy this. And I also forgot that Ryan Gosling could sing. I t- completely forgot that he had a good voice. And I'm like, man, he's he's got a voice on him. But yeah, I think um the I don't know, just even the the whole storyline of America Ferrera and her daughter and how just this whole adventure with the Barbie doll connects them and brings them back together and they gain this deeper understanding of each other and I think ultimately it's also trying to show that hey like Barbie is good for so many reasons like Barbie can connect people and you know Barbie is something that people can talk about and connect on and can make women feel good about themselves in this world and um, yeah it just everything that they did with their strong messages in this film just worked for me completely. I get what you mean about how it really kind of towed the line because it almost felt like they were trying to do too much, but they were all very valid points that they were trying to make, even though they were, there was like three in a row of like, there's this lesson, but then there's also this lesson and then this little side lesson too. Like (laughs) there's a lot of it, but I, I'm glad that they did that. I will say that the, um, I agree with you. I think about the end Sterling where I I think it's more that it just felt like it was going to end three different times and it didn't (laughs) like, I think one moment's going to be where it ends and it doesn't. And then there's two more scenes that I'm like, Oh, maybe this is it. Nope. That's not it either. So I think that was kind of weird and got a little bit off track. Um, But 
it's one of those where I'm glad that they didn't cut any of that out because I liked what they did with those extended moments. It just, it just felt like it was going to end several times and it didn't. Um, yeah, I mean the, the, the fashion and the designs of it was great. Um, I really, <laughs> I really liked the weird like rivalry between the Kins and um, specifically Ryan Gosling and Samu Liu's characters. Like just, they're always competing and all these things. It was really funny. Um, it just, everything they did just worked for me. Like there wasn't anything in this movie that I felt didn't, didn't come off the way that they wanted it to. Um, I don't know. It just, it's a very inspirational, motivational and empowering movie. And yeah, it just, it, it's just so much deeper than people. I've, I've heard so many people just like, Oh, I don't like Barbies. I don't like dolls. I don't, I don't play with Barbie dolls. I don't like it, whatever. And I'm like, that's not even what this is about. <laughs> like you got to give it a chance because I think that you're just going to learn so much more and be so much more impacted by this movie than you think you will be. So yeah, I, I just, I love everything they did with it. And again, like I had a very emotional connection to this movie because so many of the things that were talked about as far as the standards you feel like you have to meet or feeling like you, you know, you aren't good enough for this or you need to do this to be able to do that and whatever else, like all of it was just on point completely. And I, I just really, really resonated with that. So I think that's why this movie is so high for me, but even in general, just the funny moments and like just the cute backstory of everything was just also really good. So yeah, I, I just, I can't say enough good things about this movie. Justin, what about you? Yeah. So, I mean, all the points that y'all made are, um, are, are definitely on point with what this movie was. Um, I just think that, for me, what I think the the kind of parallel paths that Barbie and Ken took in this movie and how they both were affected in different ways by the real world and, and, and the shock of that and what they learned and what it did to both characters as a result of just the way the real world is when it comes to men and women. That was just to me, all of that was just genius storytelling and how Ken sort of became the opposition to Barbie in a way because of his discovery of the patriarchy. But it all sort of stemmed to this fact that he was he he seemed to always want her attention and I'm only relevant when I have your gaze and all of that kind of stuff and just sort of yeah ba- basing his life on the attention of someone else and not really the discovering himself you know or what really what he needs and everything like that and I think that that's the story of a lot of people. You know, that's the story of a lot of men. Like, you know, 
I think that for a lot of men, sometimes they define themselves by what they do or don't have, the woman they do or don't have, or whether or not they're getting attention from women or whether it's they have this or that or the other. So I like that the the movie tackled some of that too. Yeah, a lot of it is um, about feminism and a lot of it is very relatable for women and, and it talks about the female struggles. It definitely has all of that. But I like that it also had that in there too. And the importance for a man to also discover their identity and who they are and, and accepting themselves and not defining yourself by all these things that you think you need to have or get or these people's attention, you know, defining that for yourself and your perspective and not the perspective of everybody. And yeah, Heather, I also caught that whenever she got to the real world and her saying, you know, I'm, I'm discovering this consciousness about myself based on like what everybody was saying to her and how everybody was reacting to her. And yeah, that's a very real thing. And sometimes that's a hurdle that people never overcome. And so I think that it was important for this film to say that and point those things out. And so I think those are the things that I really loved about this. Even though all of the surface stuff was great, the colors, the jokes, and it was funny and entertaining and all of that stuff. But man, when you get to the real meat of this and it starts really like, and it's not afraid to have those conversations because it's Barbie or because it's supposed to be cute or because we're supposed to be colorful. It just never felt afraid to have those conversations. It knew what the mission was and it was uncompromising in that mission. And I can just respect that so much because when it was time to get to the meat of the story and the message, it, it went for it and it just went all in and it didn't care how long America Ferreira's monologue was, or it didn't care how long the conversation had to be with Barbie and Ken or the, how they had to analyze it or what Barbie needed to discover about herself it just went for it, man. And I just appreciate the uncompromising nature of that because I think a movie like this, especially with an iconic character like this and an iconic franchise like this and something that traditionally has been advertised as a very lighthearted thing. You know, Barbie has always just been about fun and stuff like that. But I like how it wasn't afraid to have those real conversations either. And I think in something like this, you would have been tempted to play it safe, you know, because of what this, just by nature of what this is. And it did it. And it was brave enough to want to say some of those things. And I just think that that's very, very important. Um and just, you know, all of the discoveries that they were making about the real world. And I like how um, America's daughter pointed out to her some of those things, too. 
like the unrealistic beauty standards and the things like that. Like I remember that stuff kind of being on the news and I remember people talking about that. Is Barbie has Barbie created an unrealistic, you know, standard in girls and what they ought to be and stuff. And she's got all of this stuff. She's got the amazing car. She's got all of these clothes and stuff. And that used to be a real conversation is Barbie. Did Barbie create an unrealistic standard about women and like consumerism with her having all of this stuff. So I loved just this whole thing about in Barbie land, you could see the empowering nature of it all. You've got all these diverse people and they're all named Barbie. All the men are named Ken with just the exception of a few, but you know, you have all these different Barbies and they're all different races, cultures, and creeds. And they all have this thing about them that is just truly them. Oh, this is, you know, veterinarian Barbie, or this is just stereotypical Barbie, or this is, but even though those are labels, the label wasn't too belittled them in Barbie land in any way. The label was there because that's just who that person was. And it, it it didn't matter if this Barbie was a doctor or that Barbie was a vet or this Barbie was the president or this Barbie was all of them were exactly what they were meant to be supposed to be. They all knew their identity and and what it was and and they were all proud of who they were and so them all having the same name like you would think okay everybody having the same name that would create some sort of identity problem but i love how there that that it it didn't at all because everybody was who they were supposed to be and and, and who they believed they were so everybody sort of had an identity there. And then when she went to the real world and all of that got mixed up and confused with how we do things in the real world, I love that that just broke her to a certain extent yeah. in the movie. And then she began to, like you say, have those same self-esteem issues and wonder, well, what am I or why am I not good enough and everything like that? And I love that it that is what the real world does to you. And I like how it did it to Barbie. You know what I mean? It even could happen to her. And on the flip side of that, I love that at the same time, Ken was discovering that, oh, man, you know, I'm respected here and men run the world here and everything like that. And just look what it did to his confidence. Just look what it did to how he felt about himself and everything like that. And even though he didn't realize a lot of that was toxic masculinity, but he was just fascinated by the fact that, oh man, here I just seem to be the king of the world. And here I just can, you know, but even then all of that still, all that power and everything like that still wasn't who he really was and what he really needed and what he really wanted. And I just think that all of that was so great when you're talking about like who you are and holding yourself up to these like things that, 
society or other people say you need to be. And so I just like how the movie attacked all of that. And I agree with you too. Like when, once it got towards the end and when America was talking about all of these sort of conflicting things that, and standards and just demands that society sorts of puts on women and how, you know, like she was saying, we got to be nice, but you can't be too nice. And if you stand up for yourself, you're a bitch. And just, you know, she was just going over all of these different things about just how conflicting and just unrealistic it is to place that on a woman to be all of that. And so like, man, it was just having some important conversations and it just being bold enough to say something about that, even in this movie, and then having the characters sort of learn these lessons and things like that. So I thought that all of that um, was, was just great. Like, I, I think that's what, I really just enjoyed um, about this the most. So it just wasn't afraid to do that. But at the same time, it leaned in heavily with its comedy and just how self-aware and kind of loony it was like with Will, like with Will Ferrell and the executives running around chasing her and running right by her. And, you know, they're running around in this office and it's just so, like 1970s Looney Tunes. <laughs> Over the top, but, yeah. Yeah, but but the but the movie wasn't afraid to do that. Or even just like, how do you traverse, you know, Barbie land and get to the real world? Well, you gotta go by boat, then by vehicle, then by this, then by that. Well, why do you have to do that? I don't know, but that's what you have to do. And and, and like it's funny that there were just these two specific characters that just knew how to do that. And it was just funny that the CEO of of Mattel just was not surprised at all that this was happening. Like, I love how just aware he was that there was, it was just accepted that there was just a Barbie land and that he knew all of that existed and everything. But yet they're in this office, like trying to sell these toys and make money and, all of this kind of stuff, knowing full well that this other world exists. So I just thought that all of that was just so silly, but the movie just leaned in a hundred percent, man. And there's just something about being uncompromising in in what you're trying to do and just believing that this is the way to do it. And we're not, and I'm not going to compromise. There's just something admirable about that. And this movie both movies are uncompromising in that way, but this one uh, w- was uncompromising in its story in that way. And I just really uh, appreciated that about it. So, yeah, man, I just think I, I just really enjoyed this. You know, um, it-, it-, it had something in there for me, but it was also just a great it's a great movie, I think, for um, for women also, and just not only people who were fans of Barbie and collected Barbies and have Barbies, because it had all of that in there, but it also had some more, some real human mature messages in it. And the fact that it wasn't afraid to do any of that is just uh, amazing. And the fact that it didn't 
also crumple under the weight of all of that because it could it ran the risk of being very yeah. uneven or off-putting or too uh, jarring and things like that. But somehow the movie balances it very well. And I think that's yeah. amazing in and of itself. I also think it's funny that um, all of the guys, all of the people in charge at Mattel were all men. <laughs> I thought that was a funny yeah. joke that they did about like, we had a we had a woman CFO twice like just that joke it worked though because you're just she's just kind of like wait what like it's a room full of men this is weird like I I thought that was funny and something you said triggered uh something I forgot about um in like at the beginning when you were talking about they're all Barbies and that's all just who they are and their jobs and what they do it's just them that's just fully them and there was that scene at the beginning too, where they're at this like award ceremony and they're getting the awards. And I think what they say is I worked really hard for this and I deserve this. That was their response when they got their award instead of thank you guys. I really appreciate that you awarded me this. They were like, yeah, I, I worked for this and I deserve this. So I thought that was really cool that they did that too, because um, in a utopia, like, yeah, it's just kind of like, no, this is a, uh, yeah, you're right. I should have this. Like, <laughs> And I thought that was a really cool message of women should be able to just be proud of these accomplishments that they have instead of having to thank somebody for giving them the opportunity to have this when it's like, no, I earned this. I thought that was cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. And therefore, yep. I work hard at it. And this is what I wanted to do. This is what I'm supposed to be. And this is and I have embraced my full self and I'm and my potential. So yeah, yeah I'll take and my award because this is my craft. This is what I do. Right. This is me. You and know? in Barbie land, it's just so ingrained that that's just normal to just get an award for something you deserve to get that it, it's, I'm like, that's actually how it should be. Right. Where we're just like, you know, like, yeah, I, I should have this cause I, I earned it. Like that's just not how it is in, the real world. So I just thought it was cool that that was a little kind of nugget that they put in Barbie land as well. Yeah. And it's back to that kind of message of, you know, you're being rewarded for being you and kind of what America was saying about not having to be, why does anybody have to be extraordinary? Why can't it just be enough to just be a normal, a normal, a normal son of <laughs> a bitch, it through. you know, yeah. what's wrong with <laughs> exactly. that? You know, what's wrong with just being normal and just that, that, that pressure all the time of you have to be this extraordinary thing. So I love that whole thing about the ordinary Barbie or even the drawings of depression, Barbie worried about death, Barbie <laughs> or yeah. all of that stuff. It sounds like, man, that's pretty depressing stuff. But that's very, like, real, like, relatable shit. You know, people are stressed yeah. out Barbie, worrying Barbie. I mean, there are people that <laughs> yeah. do that, that, that are stressed and they worry, too. And that is very much their existence. So, like, I just love how it tried to tackle all of that stuff. And, like, and just that message about it's not about being this extraordinary man or woman. It's 
about being comfortable with who you are and just understanding who you are and not being yeah. blinded by all the noise and things mm-hmm. telling you what you're supposed to be or what you're not supposed to be. Yep. You guys got any more thoughts about this? Nope. I don't think so. I I, I just want to mention this uh, real quick. I really loved the Misfit toys too. Like the whole Sugar's Daddy, Ken, and was it yeah. Magic Midge. Earring Kim or whatever? <laughs> yeah. Midge like, the Pregnant Barbie. <laughs> yeah. And the and I I really kind of liked the fact that the credit scene is just them actually showing that all those Barbies that they talked about, like you know the skipper that has breasts that grow, is a real Barbie. Like all that shit's real. They didn't make up any yeah. new Barbies in this. They're all existing Barbies. So, but, yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. On that note, thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Cinema Slayers podcast. Check us out on the internet at www.cinemaslayers.com. Cinema Slayers podcast on Facebook, Cinema underscore Slayers on Twitter, Instagram, and threads. Uh, at Cinema Slayers pod on TikTok, at Cinema Slayers pod on YouTube. Shout out to Plug Bigo and Mundo Cho for our theme song and logos respectively. Uh, give us a five-star rating and review. We really appreciate it. Really help us out. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your family's friends, and tell your friends. Tell your f- friends. To- tell your family, tell your friends, tell your friends' family, tell your family's friends. And most of all, tell those dear sweet mothers because dear sweet mothers love. Taking down the patriarchy. And Atomic Bombs. you got to remember there's two movies on And this. Atomic Bombs. Atomic Bombs yes. and Taking Down the Patriarchy. Yeah. Uh, just remember here at the Cinema Slayers podcast, we are both pro slut and pro Sydney and ever so slightly lukewarm on Justin's part for Burger King. Um, <laughs> and as Burger I was, King never compromises. That's because it doesn't sell anything. It doesn't have to compromise because it doesn't <laughs> sell. Damn it. And as I always in these TikToks, these YouTube videos and these podcasts, just remember according to Justin Moon Knight, is the best picture winner. Jason, do you even do the Wappenheimer? Come on now. Man, it's too bad that that wasn't real and that was a meme that somebody just made up, but still. Oh, there should it? have been a Wappenheimer. I yeah. thought it was real. Oh, no. Sorry. Okay. Oh, why? How come there wasn't a Barbie Whopper? How come there wasn't a Bopper or something? I don't know. <laughs> there should have been some sort of Whopper tied to Barbenheimer. A lot of companies missed the opportunity to cash in on this Barbie movie, man. Like yeah. Heather was Big saying, time. why didn't AMC have a specialty cocktail for this? They had a specialty cocktail for Ant-Man Quantumania, but you're not having one yeah. for fucking Barbie? Come on. Come on. Do you sure. think that it's kind of also maybe indicative of just the unpredictable nature of like what movie is going to take hold. Like, I mean, like, like when you look at all these movies that come out, like Indiana Jones, MI, all this stuff, it's just incredible what people will come out and see. Like 
why was Barbenheimer a thing? Like, like it's just <laughs> so crazy that that was a thing this weekend. Like, all these other movies come out, nobody's watching them, and they're just dudding at the box office. But then suddenly this weekend is Barbenheimer weekend and everybody went to go see these movies. And it's just the weird, why was it, why was this weekend that weekend? Well, I don't even, yeah. I can't even explain that. Like next weekend, you've got talk to me, uh, sympathy for the devil. And which I don't think is a wide release, but you've got talk to me in haunted mansion. Man, why aren't they doing talk to mansion weekend or whatever? Like exactly. <laughs> haunted yeah. Why? Weekend. I am mind boggled by like how this happened. I, think I, I just don't it, understand it at all. I think part of it has to do with the fact that this isn't the first time in a long time that it's been two truly big movies going up against each other. Yeah, definitely since mm. the pandemic, for sure. You, you've had a lot of weekends where, yeah, movies go up against each other, but it's been a long time since it's been like two key releases for studios mm. going, you know, head to head with each other. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, I do want to give a quick SAG strike update. Um Today, Dwayne The Rock Johnson donated the largest sum that has ever been donated to the SAG uh, emergency fund. And really? And it, it is up there apparently somewhere in the seven figures. So wow. So he did wow. some millions of dollars he donated to the strike emergency fund to help them go longer if they need. Because wow. they can help pay for the people that need financial assistance during the strike. I'm so glad he's on our list of I know. of people that we the the good people council. I'm glad he's on it. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really cool. The largest single donation they've ever received. Wow. That's amazing. Cool. So very cool. That's that's my strike update for today. Other than that, oh well I mean yeah. another small update. It's 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 for a strike that we haven't talked about, but the Teamsters Union might not be striking against UPS uh, at the end of this month like everybody thought they would. I got an update on that today, actually, yeah, because of work that they came to an agreement. The, it's a tentative agreement. It still needs to be voted on because there is a mm. ton of Teamster members or, you know, with UPS. But, yeah, they came to an agreement because UPS realized they're looking like shit. They need to just negotiate and come to the, you know, the table and agree to this shit because they're going to look bad. And also financial analysts looked at it that there's a chance if they had gone on strike for like a few days, they would have never financially recovered with just mm-hmm. the sheer number of refunds they'd have to give for delayed packages and all this shit. They would have been fucked on some of their big contracts. So UPS came to the table. They were able to come to an agreement and you know, Maybe studios should look at the shit and quit being fucking all bullshit about the writers and actor strikes. So, yeah. But yeah, I'm going to go now because my thigh is bleeding. Oh. Because this oh. cat literally at the end decided to jump and claw on my thigh. Literally, like right as the theme song was ending, she just decided to jump up on me and she scratched the fuck out of my leg in a couple of places. So oh, no. I'm going to go do some Man. first aid. 
so I'm not getting blood all over my bed tonight. Damn. All right. So she's tiny, but she's fierce. All right, I'm out.